0: Welcome back to the Crafts Survival Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by KillCliff.com. Uh, I can't say it enough. I'm drinking an actual recover after a long week on the road in Montana. Um, but that blood orange wakes me up every single morning. I don't use the Ignite unless I'm working out. Um, but I'm a big fan of that CBD. It has 25 milligrams of CBD. Infused CBD. Um, what I like about KillCliff.com is they help benefit veteran Uh, businesses and nonprofits. One of the things they do is help out the Navy Seal Foundation with taking proceeds of profits from their energy drinks and putting it back into the special operations community. That's a big deal for me. Go to Killcliff.com and save 10% on checkout using the code survival10. Again, survival 10 Killcliff.com. This podcast is also sponsored by KC Highlights dot com and that's h-i-l-i-t-e-s dot com you could use philcraft one word to save 10 percent on checkout i did a cool video with the guys on our philcraft survival channel on youtube that got demonetized no big deal but uh, you could get the free content at youtube and watch light tactics that covers all the kc highlights i have on my go rig and why they are on that go rig a lot of people like to put lights because it looks cool but there's a specific reason, a tactical reason why you'd use lights off-road, on-road, obviously at night. So go to kchighlights.com and use Philcraft, one word, to save 10% on checkout. Also, this podcast is brought to you by TriArcSystems.com, T-R-I-A-R-C Systems.com. Use Philcraft, one word, to save 5% on any gun build on checkout. Look, I have a Tri-11, it's one of my favorite guns. Guys ask me all the time, hey, can I use that for everyday carry? The answer is yes. If you have a Tri-11, one, it has a safety that is based off uh, the back of your grip. So it has a grip safety and a thumb safety that you drop. Um, and that's safely stowed in your bag without fear of it you know, activating or people magically think these guns go off. But you can grab that gun and go to work uh, defending your life. But it's one of the most accurate guns I've ever used. And I have the short barrel version. Consider kind of the commander version of it. Um, but that Tri 11 is one of my favorites. Go to triarchsystems.com to save 5% on checkout using Philcraft, one word. Also, this podcast is brought to you by Bravo Company Manufacturing, the best AR 15s on the planet. Uh, I just picked up the 11.5. If you're asking for advice on the best AR 15 setup, it depends on what you're using it for, but universally, I'm an advocate for the 11.5 BCM upper or full build. The reason I would advocate for that is because SOCOM did a test in evaluating trajectory based on the barrel length. And this being a 1 in 7 barrel twist, you could optimize your trajectory by using a 62 grain and heavier and then 11.5. And you get no deficiencies using 11.5 over 14.5. So the shorter, the better, in a sense, without affecting trajectory. So that 11.5 BCM is the way to go. Go to Bravo Company Manufacturing. Or just Google BCM. Um, Hey, guys, I had the opportunity to podcast somebody who wrote a book on Ruby Ridge and Waco and his experiences there. He was a member of the FBI Haas' rescue team, which is the most elite um, counterterrorism unit domestically in in the world. And so FBI, HRT, there's a lot of history we talk about. There's a lot of... um, Um, circumstance and scenarios that we talk about based on the decision-making at Ruby Ridge and Waco. And I figured it'd be highly controversial, but it's not so much controversial when you speak to somebody who was actually there. You know, we get our information from the media, secondhand reports, the list goes on, but you get to hear from Chris on the exact uh, circumstance and from the ground, from the tactical perspective of what these guys were dealing with, When dealing with the significant parts of uh, policing history or or counterterrorism history in our nation. All right, guys. So uh, without uh, further ado, let's kick it off with uh, Chris, a member of the FBI hostage rescue team. Witt, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Good to see you. Beautiful place you got here. Hey, thanks, man. It's amazing. Um, We just did a little backwoods tour. just. Took us around, saw the different land, and um, uh, I didn't tell you this. Well, I told you this before the podcast, but um, on the way here, I listened to your book. Uh, Which one? Cold Cold Zero. Cold Zero. Uh, The guys listened to it too, and you know we're hyper, we're super critical of anything, long gun sniper or anything, because we live that world, and we tuned into it, and all obviously because you did it. But you have a, a real good way of telling that story. Um, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's a great book. Man, you're a great writer.
1: <laughs> yeah, thanks.
0: But like, well, I,
1: I tried to be a writer, tried to make a living as a writer
0: before. I tried
1: to make a living with a rifle. Yeah. So uh, I, I appreciate it a lot. It means a lot when you say that.
0: Did you, did you always have an affinity for writing? I'm assuming that's something you grew up with.
1: Yeah. My first memory was that I wanted to, be a, to make a living as a writer. I wanted to be Ernest Hemingway. He went to war, wrote stories about it, mm-hmm. and lived that romanticized life of combat, I suppose. But that was my earliest memory. I never wanted to be a brain surgeon, or a truck driver, or a fireman, or whatever else. I wanted to write books.
0: Did you, did you have a sense that you were going to be the adventurous, or did you have like maybe an idea of what that adventure would entail? I had no idea. I knew it was going to be somewhere
1: outside in the world. I grew up in a valley in northern New Hampshire, the White Mountains, Franconia Notch, And I always called it a land of limited horizons. Nobody ever left. There wasn't much to do. I could have been a logger, maybe a welder. Uh, I could have worked in tourism or something like that. Super blue
0: collar collar
1: there. Super blue collar. That's all there was. There was a small college called Franconia College when I was growing up. Uh, Very odd, kind of a hippie community. And that was it. Other than that, you worked off the land, minimum wage jobs. Never really had any idea that I could go out in the world. Didn't know what that meant. But I had a compulsion for adventure. Mm-hmm. So when I was a kid, that adventure was live outdoors all the time. You'd get kicked out of the house at breakfast and come back if, if you were hungry. And that was really it. So uh, when I was one, uh, first grade, so what's that, six years old or something like that, I would go out with my buddies, and we would just be gone till we came back. Mm-hmm. So that life continued, outdoors making our own entertainment, really till today. And I think that sense of adventure became uh, a much larger thing that led me out into the bigger world. I wanted to get away.
0: Where did the writer and you come in? Because you had talked about in that book even that you had written poetry or you wrote pro- poetry and still continue to do so. Where, wh- who influenced you to be a writer?
1: You know, that's a great question. And I, I don't know. I really, truly think I was born to it. I, I have no interest. I mean, I have no idea where that interest came from. I remember it from my earliest childhood, Miles Davis, I'm a musician. Miles Davis said, my earliest memory is the color blue, which is a wild thing. But my earliest memory was wanting to make a living as a writer and living in that world. So now, uh, because of the the way the world has played out, nobody says, I want to be a writer anymore because people don't read books as much. The written form has lost that. In the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, Making a living as a writer was a very romanticized version of the world. Mm -hmm. And some of the foremost people in all of Western culture were writers. Mm -hmm. And you see less of that now because people watch different format entertainment like we're doing right now. Mm -hmm. Many people listen to this that never will read a book. So it may not seem to listeners today what it was when I was a kid, but it was something really to, to aspire to. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be... Uh, Colonel Kurtz in the cave, you know, uh, what apocalypse now came from a novel, or I wanted to, the heart of darkness, or I wanted to be a Hemingway character. I wanted that big life in the world and I wanted to write it down. Hmm. So I think I was somehow born to it.
0: And and that's what I did originally. I started out as a writer. Were you an avid reader as well? Because I feel like you're like part of that process is taking yourself into an alternate reality and away from whatever you're doing and getting away. Exactly right. I did. I was escapist. Uh, and It was an odd combination. I think now many people
1: think of a writer or a reader as somebody that sits around in a dark room, they're introspective, maybe uh, a bit uh, feel uncomfortable in an outside world. And I was not that. I would take... I mean, even when I was on HRT, I carried a book of sonnets with me everywhere I went. So I'd be on a hit on an HVT, and I'd have a book of sonnets, and I'd read it on the on the ride in on the chopper or something like that. I always had an affinity for an attraction to the written word, and I found something in it. So you know, I think I said one time that I was uh, had a warrior's heart and a poet's soul or something like that. Mm.
0: And I still do. I think it's a really valid way to represent the way you look at the world. There's a lot of parallels in uh, me and you and that sense because I, I grew up writing poetry I still have written poetry and um, everywhere I went on deployments or even my cargo pants I would have a novel or a book really yeah everywhere oh, well. so I, I strategically would place books you know on the shitter in the bedroom wherever I would be and I would get a chapter in but it was constantly like a uh, a, a virtual alternate world or reality that I was living in the background waiting to get back to because uh, often You know, in that job, even in HRT, you know, ninety nine percent of it is boredom, waiting on the word, and then that one percent is 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 validates that ninety nine percent. But you go into that space in that ninety nine percent of the time. Yeah, it's fascinating. I didn't,
1: I didn't know you felt the same way, but I do feel the guys that make it into our old world, whatever that may be, wherever you draw the line, special operations people in general, is a cerebral set. I think that what I've seen in that community is you've got great athletes, you can t- t- teach a monkey to shoot a gun. You can do a lot of those things and practice and become good at it, but it's decision makers and it's people who have a creative sense of how to deal with chaos. When you go in a door and you're exhausted and you're wet and you're hungry, it's four o'clock in the morning, There's people screaming, There's people dying. Having a sense of the, the intellect that goes with that, and I'm not mm-hmm. sure really how to describe it, uh, makes a difference. It really makes a difference between... Somebody who's good and somebody who is great.
0: Yeah, I believe that, that same thing. I mean, the most creative and intelligent people I've ever met were operators across the spectrum That's of what I was trying to say. I agree. That's,
1: that's the perfect way to put it. Some, yeah. of the, some of the most creative, some of the funniest, some of the most introspective, some of the most insightful were guys that were also... The monsters in the room. I'm
0: going to add "insane" with an asterisk as <laughs> well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, listen, I think you got to be. You know, there's uh, there's
1: always a fine line between creativity and whatever happens after that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I think I've walked that line at various times in my life. In those days, I didn't. I felt I had a good grasp on it. But I think that that mindset, you know it, uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The creative element of conflict is a fascinating. Uh, symbiotic relationship, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of guys from the community understand that. And a lot of guys from the community embrace that, and they've taken it someplace else.
0: Yeah, I, I almost feel, you know, those guys or special operations guys in their own way are artists in their own way. Uh, it's just a, obviously a different medium, right? But I like to see guys who have our similar backgrounds to come out and do something great with it, not sit behind a desk or be a GS, whatever. Uh, for an indefinite period of time, but like to do something with that productively because there's so much a need for it now. So
1: true. And I think when I started out, it was such a secretive community that nobody ever talked about anything. And it stifled a lot of that. I think guys that I worked with in the early years could have made real contributions to society after they got out. They didn't feel they could because that community built the silent professional. We always used to talk of the quiet professional, right? That you'd sit back, you'd do the job, you'd never talk about it, which made sense because you know for a long time, that stuff really was secret, not so much anymore. Um, but I think that would have migrated and made society a better place. I think society needs guys who've come from that world mm-hmm. because they have so much experience. They have so much perspective. They have such intelligence. They have such creativity. And- Society sure as hell needs that right now.
0: Yeah, me and Kevin Owens had that conversation about you know this quiet professionalism that, especially that's instilled in the army, uh, as per you know my experiences. They instill this mindset, but they forget. Like I was inspired because of John Plasters, like Mac V Sog guys that were writing books that came back from war with these world experiences and motivated me to get off my ass and do something different and be provocative and take chances and be bold. Well, we live in a society now where being bold could be tagging a brick wall. It could be, you know, throwing something through the front end of a store, whatever it may be. It's like, we're driven by the wrong things. And I, I, I I agree with your sentiment. I think that is a double-edged sword And, and the Navy seems to get it right. Because I mean, if you think about special operations and ask a civilian, They're like, oh, are you a SEAL? It's like, no, no. There's a whole other thing. But I don't know if it's justification because I want to justify me telling those stories and me identifying with people and me inspiring a new generation. Um, But it also feels like a purpose. Like there should be people doing that.
1: There has to be people doing it. We live in a society that I think artificially over the last 10 or 20 years in my life experience has shied from conflict in all ways. You got helicopter parents, the, the heavily maligned millennial generation. And I'm not doing that, but I'm saying we grow up in a world where nobody gets punched in the, in the mouth, right? Mm. I mean, you just don't do it. And we're trying to breed a culture in the United States that we're the first, that we are the superpower in the world with a population that has never experienced real conflict. Mm. So when 9 11 happened, Afghanistan, Iraq, the two longest wars in the history of the United States, we had to come up with a warrior culture where we had bred that out of society, where you couldn't get in a fistfight at school. When I was a kid, I got in a fistfight every day. I mean, my whole life was shaped by this guy named Bucky Corliss, who used to kick the shit out of me in third grade for a year, right? It defined my life because I fought back and became something else. But we live in a world now metaphorically where people don't embrace conflict. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think we're seeing that today, the riots in the streets, protests, there's a great deal of anger. We have a catalyst, that catalyst has inspired rage and that rage is manifesting as riots. And that's new to society. Mm-hmm. So I look at it and say exactly what you just put so well, that we have a very small subset in that community, in your background, in my background, of creative, highly evolved, incredibly uh, clear-thinking, decision-making individuals who kind of fall out mainst- outside mainstream society. Mm-hmm. And if we could bring those guys back into the conversation, if we could use those guys to find a way toward what's next, these riots aren't going to last. The economy is going to come back. America is going to be America again. We need you. We need the guys. We need people to come back and say, we have a solution that is not a spineless politician. It is not a cynical media. It is people who know how to lead in times of chaos in a defined, creative way and make this world a better place.
0: And I hope to hell that you're
1: leading the way on that, man. I, I believe in what you're doing. I really,
0: truly believe in what you're doing. I appreciate that. It's 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 a bizarre world to live in now, and you know it's it's weird because we're used to the simplicity of what just right is. Right? We we understand that that ethic, um, and there's no dilemma. But so many people battle with their own internal struggles because of the you know, how convoluted everything they're receiving is in media, in you know, their peer groups, et cetera. It's just a it's it's a bizarre, it's bizarre world to me. It's just insane. It's a bizarre world and I agree. I, I I'm a a how am I
1: gonna rephrase this? I grew up as a writer, I kind of define myself that way and I still write every day. But my mind thinks mathematically. My mind looks in terms of statistical probability and ways of explaining all of human interaction. And I look at it in terms of probability with people as well. The vast majority of people are in the middle of a, of a bell curve for lack of a better terms. And they are people who want to follow, they don't really have anything to say themselves. And I'm not maligning them. That's just the way most people are statistically. And they want something to, be- to believe in, to belong to. So I think in recent time, you look at movements, and you could, this is non-political. I'm just looking at news events. So you look at the Kavanaugh hearings. You look at the Me Too movement. You look at impeachment of, uh, of the president. You look at what's going on right now with Black Lives Matter. You have broadly different political manifestations of an in, of an inherent rage in the American population and with social media right now you can you can Almost weaponize a population and we're seeing riots that I haven't seen since in 1968 right so that right now I think people want to belong to something even if they would otherwise have no role in it whatsoever and you have this massive sheep mentality where people just fall in line with what I, I perceive to be a hysteria. So what I'm saying is the people from your world, my, my old world, People that have all of the leadership qualities, they understand the difference between right and wrong. They have the capability and the skills to survive in almost any adverse conditions. They have everything we need in a leader class to show America where to go next, to lead this country, this population towards something that's fair and just and right, but not sycophantish and is not uh, malingering and rioting and vandalizing and criminalizing. And, and we're there we're out there so you know we talked before about a concept one of the guys was talking about tim kennedy or or andy stump one of the guys was talking about called the bench and and i think just haphazardly said there's a lot of us out there sitting on the bench saying put me in coach and there is a mindset now about the most capable people in my opinion this country has ever produced through the schools you've been through and the mindset the discipline uh, conflict resolution, all those things that you've lived in your life that are sitting back, like you and I are sitting back, watching this stuff play out in American society, saying, what the hell's going on? It has to go someplace. A riot may vent a rage, but it does not lead to a resolution. Mm. We need to go someplace. It's enough to process this anger, but we've got to go someplace next. And in my opinion, it ain't going to be a politician mm-hmm. because they are the spineless, ego-driven people uh, say anything to anybody as long as it gets a vote, that's not the answer to where we are right now. Mm. So I, I believe and I hope that all those guys that we know out there looking for something new in the world understand that I, I really truly believe in fundamental ways this country needs you guys. really does.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a, I mean, that's a good way to, to frame everything that we're going to talk about here because I want to capture um, where that journey started for you um, in HRT because HRT, like it's weird because sitting on this side of the the table, I, I I imagine you might look at me like when you were younger, we had that, that conversation. And I look at the same way across the table, looking at you because you have gone through different phases of your life and your journey that have led you to the place that you're at now. And I look at that and and go, wow, uh, you know, if I make the right decisions here, if I figure out how to navigate that path, um, I could be on a ranch in Montana, uh, <laughs> writing yeah. books, and and you know l- looking back on my life. But it all started in HRT for you. It's it started th- that way, right? Yeah, it really did. And and
1: I'll start out by saying I, I've told you this. I, I think of myself as the world's luckiest man, and I don't say that idly. I really truly believe that, and I believe as we had talked about. In a previous conversation, that I can manifest things. I think from the time I was a little kid, that I had some ability in my own mind to will things to happen, and I could go through many things in my life that are perfect examples of that. The case, I mean, stupid things. I, I don't. I, I don't want to sound like an idiot, but uh, from parking spaces to ending up on HRT, things that I had to work for really hard in order to make happen, and things that I just worked at in terms of willpower from the time I was a little kid. So I look at it now and say that I have had a lot of experiences in my life inside the community and outside the community. HRT was a critical juncture where I became something different. And that led to a lot of the things that you and uh, Kevin and your friends and people from the community will go through now. And I have a lot of guys that are in or coming out now from from the Navy, from the FBI, from CIA, from, the, from all these different groups and they they asked me questions, their wives asked me questions, their kids asked me questions because I survived it. I made it through it, I thrived and I've and I've been very, very lucky that way. Some of it was me manifesting change. Some of it was just the world taking over, I suppose. But uh, it's a great compliment for you to say that that, uh, that I'm kind of like what you've gone through. Uh, another generation so
0: is is will is is will the vision and then giving you an understanding of what decisions to make to meet that end vision or objective uh, the way it, the way it played out for me from the time I was a little kid and
1: I'm not kidding I'm, I'm talking early memories of like six, seven, first, second, third grade. I just knew that if I wanted something badly enough and I was and I knew what I wanted That I could find a way to get it. And and some of those things were just very, very simple. You want to throw a baseball, you throw a baseball, right? Some of those things are simple. If I wanted to go someplace or do something that I didn't think was possible, I found a way to do it. And most of the things in my life people would consider extremely improbable. Growing up in a small town in northern New Hampshire where nobody did much of anything really... Uh, very good people, but there were no opportunities, and nobody went to college. Nobody went into the outside world. Nobody ever went to a, another state, a foreign country. I knew people growing up who had never been from to Vermont, which was 40 miles away. So to find a way somehow to move out of that world, and I know you d- you've you done the exact same thing, and we both know people in our line of work that if you ask them about their roots, they did not go to Harvard on a trust fund uh, with an athletic scholarship who were, were a, uh, some kind of a model on the side, right? A lot of guys from our community found a way to make things happen that is very hard to explain. I knew guys when I was on HRT, this one guy, whatever, his name is Butler, but he, uh, he went to high school going to the bathroom in an outhouse. He grew up in a house with no plumbing, with no running water, and he found a way to a pretty remarkable... Uh, to life so growing up in a rural community with very few people and fewer options i found a way out and i think it was willpower it was deciding that i wanted to do something and i was going to go get it mm-hmm. even though that was kind of impossible and and it just it it continues to this day i mean you coming out here meeting you and and Playing out possibilities in lives is something that I believe in fundamentally, and I think the people that I've met in my life that are most accomplished all felt the exact same way. Mm. I'm not unique. Yeah, most of the people I hang around with say, "Watch this, hold my beer." Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm going to go get it done.
0: I felt the same way as like a l- little kid as well. But and and I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to manifest the words to be able to uh, relate that to people taking advantage of choice or taking advantage of opportunity, right? Because so many people in our society don't take that advantage of opportunity. And what what I always tell people about the democracy that we live in in America, having a worldly perspective like you, is that we have more choices and opportunity than anybody else. So when you actually come outside of your shell or bubble and realize that you're afforded more opportunity, then you could seek that opportunity. So it's maybe it starts, if you want to be a Green Beret, it starts with, hey, you need to join the Army. Yes. What's the best path? Right. Well, I get 100 people or 100 kids DMing me every day on social media, media saying, hey, what's the path? I was like, the path starts with you enlisting. Don't <laughs> right. don't, don't worry about <laughs> right. the push-up requirement for, to be a Green <laughs> right. Beret. Yeah. Let's start off with raising your hand and swearing an oath, and then you'll get there. And so it's it's amazing because that whole construct and in, in, – is a um, a very good identifi- identifiable characteristic of a successful person, right? They 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 know how to create the vision. They have maybe the creative mind to articulate that because in everything I did, I could map out what the feeling would be like and then go through all the check the blocks to get there and then it would be better than the feeling that I created in my head. Um, but I, I wonder if there's something to that because... Well, there is something to it. And it's it's fascinating to have a conversation with you because
1: you finished my sentences. I mean, we, we have very, very similar perspectives in a way that many people would not have those same perspectives. But I look at what you just said as a foundation of everything I do in life and I, and everything I tell that to, to young people, old people, anybody else. I say, if you do not know what you want to do, you will never accomplish it. Does that sound stupid? Probably. But an objective in life is the fundamental choice somebody has to make to ever be happy in anything. You have to come up with an objective, and it has to be a valid objective. So I'll sometimes sit with somebody and say, what do you wanna do? And they'll say, I don't know. And I say, well, then yeah. you're never gonna do much of anything. But then we start refining that down into what they may wanna do. And I had this conversation with this person once, and they, they wanted to go into the CIA. And I said, well, why do you wanna go into the CIA? And they went through this, they had just gotten out of of grad school. (coughs) Excuse me. And they said, I want to go into conflict resolution. And I said, conflict resolution? Well, you want to be uh, a crossing guard, you know, to keep kids from getting hit by a car? And you start checking it down. And they didn't want to go into conflict resolution. They didn't want to go into the CIA. They didn't want to do any of those things. And it took a while to get to the objective that what they really wanted to do. So I would ask people, to sit down and decide what you wanna do when you wake up in the morning, you get out of bed, what happens next, what happens a minute after that, and walk through what you fundamentally wanna do in life. Once you do that, you can do any fucking thing in the world that you wanna do. Sorry about the language.
0: Oh, you but, can cuss on this podcast. Okay, good,
1: well, <laughs> good, because I do that a lot, but you can do anything in life that you wanna do. The most difficult thing is deciding what that may be. And my, in my experience, once you decide your objective and you manifest that path, it will happen. I, I, I believe it sincerely. I have a friend who talks about it as pronoia, and I'm sure she didn't invent that word. I'm sure people talk about it. Um, and I said, the first time I heard it, I said, what's pronoia? And she said, well, you know, paranoia is. And I said, yeah. She said, pronoia is the opposite. When I wake up in the morning, I just can't wait to find out what great stuff's going to happen in my life. And I said, wow, that's kind of the way I look at it. I never came up with that word, but I really do that, Mike. I mean, I look every day and I say, this is a fucking great day, what's gonna happen? And it's almost like a treasure hunt. When you manifest in that manner, when you wake up and realize the weave of experiences that play out in your day can be everything you want. When you realize that, when you believe that, you can do it. There's nothing unique about my perspective in terms of manifesting good things in life, and they're not always pleasant, right? I mean, sometimes a 20-mile run sucks, but, it, but benefit comes from it. But when you, object, when you understand your objective and you manifest a path, you can do anything in your life. You and I are examples. We're perfect mm. examples of what people cannot do in life. How many people have shared your career path? Five, mm. 10, maybe one, but you did it and you found a way to do it from a path people would not normally believe could happen. We both came from austere roots in a lot of different ways. We both came through challenges and found a way to create something that people now crave, people now want to hear what you have to say about that path. They Mm. want to learn from your experience. They wanna trust what you've done. They want to improve their lives based on your pioneering spirit. But they've got to know what that is to begin with, and understand that it can happen. it does happen
0: How do you go from a speechwriter on Capitol Hill to being one of the most elite operators and domestically the most elite counterterrorism unit in the world
1: uh it's a great question i i I started out as an English well i got out of college I went to California to be a rock star, which was didn't work out very well you know <laughs> but uh Uh, And then I went and I taught English at a boarding school in Massachusetts, because I thought that was the path. I mean, Ernest Hemingway wrote for a newspaper, whatever, the whole path. So then I went from there to a newspaper. It was a newspaper reporter. I was making a living as a writer. My dream's coming true. Uh, The congressman that represented that district read a couple of my stories and hired me to go to Washington to write his speeches. I'm still living the dream, keeping the dream alive. I'm still writing. Now I'm in D.C., and I go to a State of the Union address. Back then, it was, a, it was a different world. I mean, I'm 61, so I'm the old guy, obviously. But Ronald Reagan was president, who was a badass. I don't care what you think about politics, left, right, or whatever. He was a badass. And my boss was a ranking member of the Appropriations Committee. So every week, almost every week, we'd go out and get, his, get in his 1968 GTO judge, Convertible with factory flames, right? I mean a fucking crazy ass car (laughs) and we'd drive from the capitol building down Pennsylvania Avenue, which used to be a road now. It's a a pedestrian We'd turn left at the White House drive up to the Oval Office get out of the car and I'm a 22 year old 23 year old Kid and we'd go in and I'd sit out the outside the Oval Office while he had these meetings uh, During the Reagan administration. it was pretty cool shit and then I went to the State of the Union addresses and I was writing these speeches for a senior member of Congress that were playing out on the evening news. And it was, it was really remarkable uh, and built a sense of patriotism. I, I believed in the American dream and I felt like I was part of the American dream because I was writing about it and creating it. And then one day I said, I'm tired about writing it. I want to live this son of a bitch. And then uh, I was fighting Golden Gloves so as a speechwriter in the day, but I've always been a fighter after Bucky Corliss beat the shit out of me in third grade. <laughs> so I was fighting Golden Gloves in DC and I would go to the gym after work. I was getting ready for a fight and I came home one day and there was a big envelope on the kitchen counter and it said, Chris Whitcomb, uh, return address, Federal Bureau of Investigation, Washington, DC. And I almost shit myself. I go, why is the FBI after me? Ooh. Right? It was really weird. And it turns out that my wife had seen that as my path and applied for me. So I never even applied to the FBI, it was kind of an accident. And, uh, but that worked out, so I got in the FBI, fell into violence within the FBI, I guess, and then I ended up on uh, the hostage rescue team, which at the time was, you know, that was a different world then. So uh, we, we still called it Delta Force back then, we still called it SEAL Team Six back then, and the hostage rescue team, but that was really it. That was the, the whole community. So that's how I got in, series of accidents. But when I decided I wanted to get into the FBI, I, I had a regimen based on will where I manifested that in a way that most people wouldn't even believe could, is possible in the way I directed it. And it took 13 months, so I went at it for 13 months before I finally got in, but that was the beginning.
0: So when you so meaning like you're preparing yourself physically and mentally, to I would be wake successful. up.
1: I would dream it. I would wake up and I would think about getting. So I'm sitting at a desk on Capitol Hill. My office looked right onto the Capitol building from the Rayburn House Office Building. The whole thing was incredible. It was the, the dream about Washington D.C. the civics classes, all that, right? But I would sit there all day, every day, thinking about getting my run in and what my desk was going to look like when i got in the fbi what i was going to wear who i was going to talk to what the job was like uh, how hard i would work out and and i would i would have a mantra that i would that would go through my mind all the time every single waking moment of every single day i focused on getting in the fbi and at that time it was i can't say it was impossible with it, but it was very difficult you know it was a series of tests it was very competitive and I'm, I'm not sure when I started that I thought it was even possible. But by the time I got in, I absolutely knew I was going to get in because I believed it.
0: It almost feels like you're, like you're creatively writing the script that's for your exactly life. That's exactly it.
1: Yeah. Mike, that's it. That's it. Very well stated. We write the script. You decide what you're going to do. When you believe it, it happens. So many things in my life have happened when I let go and just believed it just like, okay, I know it's going to happen. And, and I, w- I would encourage people to try it. That it, There's nothing special about me doing this. Somebody else told me about it. Uh, I just believe in it. But you could fight something uh, on and on and on. But if you just look at the people in your life and you talk to people who are unhappy, you talk to people who are misguided, you talk to people who are unfulfilled in their lives, and you sit down and have a conversation with them, they have no idea what they want it to be. They don't, they don't trust that they can be happy. They don't believe that they can do something extraordinary. When you trust it, when you believe in it, and when you let it go, it's kinda easy. Yeah. Right? So the push-ups suck. The loading magazines so your fingers are raw. You know, the goofy things, the day-to-day stuff kind of sucks. But the lifestyle is belief. There's no fucking way you run into a room at five o'clock in the morning with screaming women and bombs going off and the you know the chaos that goes with war. Uh, there's no way you do that unless you absolutely believe that you're going to win. And and we've discussed this before. I, I conditioned fear out of my 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 life and adrenaline. We've talked about this, that guys are successful in a certain world. Just believe it. You mm-hmm. just know it's that you're going to survive. You just know that you're going to win. And there's no such thing as the baddest guy in the world. But if you don't believe you're that, you better find a new line of work but it's not just with the, with the armed conflict. It's that way if you work for Goldman Sachs, it's that way if you take tickets at a toll booth in Oklahoma, right? If you believe in what you're doing and you have an objective of what you want that to be, you can do anything in the world. And you and I have both done it. Is, was HRT selection a kick in the balls though? HRT, so, so you know, I, I'm keen to talk about the history of how we got here. And it's really fascinating how HRT started and how military special operations group. So it all started out with, what do you call Delta now? You call it the Combat Applications Mm -hmm. Group. So Combat Applications Group was the first. Well, it started with the 22nd SAS. And here's an interesting thing. I was going to college in London, England, in 1980, when when the 22nd SAS hit Prince's Gate. Oh, wow. I was living around the corner. So I would go up there every day. And we'd watch the riots play out and everything. And then one day we're up there and the, you know, it goes down, right? Yeah. The 22nd hit. Classic.
0: Hit, hit And I was watching. Yeah.
1: Dude, I was there. Yeah. And, uh, and it was wild that, uh, back then it was really still secret. They awarded them a, a medal and it was all blacked out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but after 19, what was it, 76 Munich Games, I guess, was 76. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even think they'd started GSG-9 at that point. But the 22nd was pioneering what became our world. And uh, I thought that was pretty incredible later on to work with them, to go to, Her- to Hereford and, and live in that world. But anyway, the point in the story is that the, uh, the origins of Combat Applications Group, those guys uh, went through the FBI Academy undercover, in order to pioneer those techniques. Because Delta, we called it Delta at the time, Delta was not a special war group. It was a hostage rescue component. It was a counterterrorism cell that was put together for a specific function. They're very secretive, but the the tactics were different. It was not even an SF unit. It was not a ranger battalion. It was a new type of technique for a very specific objective, Mm -hmm. which is go into a room full of bad guys and save the good guys and You can't do that with frag grenades. So you pioneer the flashbang. You can't do that with uh, Suppressive fire. You've got to do that with precision surgical fire. You've got to do you've got to learn CQB You've got to learn how to fight with people in a closed space You've got to do a lot of things that didn't exist before so that was being pioneered in the SWAT community particularly in New York and LA and those guys went through the FBI school to learn those SWAT tactics because it was so secretive. So when, in 1982, the, F, the federal government writ large decided to stand up a team for the Los Angeles Olympics in 1984, they had to come up with a team that could do that. And because of the posse comitatus, they could not send Delta or SEAL Team 6, Delta Group, into that community because it was prohibited by federal law. So they had to come up with a third equivalent, supposed at the time to be equivalent component. So they built that component within the FBI. Mm. They had to put it someplace. And that was a national asset. It was a national asset Mm. with international capability. And one thing that's really important to point out, in the 1980s and 1990s, until 2000, until September 11th, 2001, terrorism was considered a law enforcement criminal justice enterprise. Mm. So anything, and terrorism used to be a huge deal, right? Now, we, we never see terrorist attacks. We see school shootings. In the 70s and 80s and in the 1990s, there were hijackings of commercial airliners all the time. Yeah, There were bombs going off all the time. When I left the FBI in 2001, the federal government designated 66 different terrorist organizations. Al-Qaeda and bin Laden were like number 30 down the list. Mm. So I'd go to work every day, and I knew bin Laden because I worked bin Laden, but there were so many different groups that we went after. So uh, HRT was stood up. In 82, they became operational in 83, but they were built on the model of the, of the army team. They were built on the model of Delta because the FBI helped Delta Force when they, start, when they stood up the team and they built those techniques. So as a reciprocal arrangement, the Army and Delta at Fort Bragg hosted, trained, and built the program for HRT. Oh well. Wow. So six, SEAL Team Six, and, and HRT, and uh, and Delta or Combat Applications Group are very different. They've evolved in different paths. Mm-hmm. But I worked intimately with both of those teams in those days, and they were dramatically different organizations. But HRT was built to, as a as an equivalent of Delta Force.
0: Wow. So they were the so. The international, outside the continental United States, the the war zone, special operations could handle, military could handle, but you guys were were the counterterrorism force for anything domestic, but also international type events where American citizens were involved. Right, anything. So, there's a common
1: myth that many people you talk to say the CIA handles outside the United States and the FBI handles inside the United States. Complete and utter myth. Mm-hmm. There are more case officers inside the United States than out. Mm-hmm. There are more offices, I think, technically, from the FBI outside the United States than in. so mm-hmm. that's that's the first myth. The second is that the CIA cannot work domestically, utter myth, mm-hmm. complete and myth, or that the FBI cannot work outside. So when HRT was put together, because of the posse comitatus, which prohibits the use of of military and civilian law enforcement, the federal government felt they could not use the Army or the Navy in terrorist operations outside the US. Did they? Yes, to a certain extent, because everything was very secret in those days. But anything with a US citizen and a terrorist attack, something designated terrorism, was supposed to be the purview of the hostage rescue team. Mm. And for the most part, it was. So we started, Everybody now talks about renditions, but as an example, HRT did the first rendition of the first rendition of a guy named Fawaz Yunus off the coast of Lebanon in 1986, and right after the team was put together, so an international terrorist attack, uh, a foreign national, in he was in Lebanon. And he was lured by two CIA case officers in bikinis on a sailboat into international waters. HRT dragged it into the boat. Uh, took him over the horizon to a navy vessel, put him on a plane, and flew him back to the United States. Wow. In what at the time was the longest nonstop flight in in world history, I think, because no country would allow U.S. Uh, military to fly the terrorist over their airspace. It was a crazy mission, wow. right? But that was HRT, and HRT did that stuff. <coughs> excuse me, all the time because of those provisions. So you and I have talked about this uh, in those days. Even though I will say, and I. I don't want to piss anybody off, but I always said that, that we were kind of playing at what Delta and SEAL Team Six did more professionally because of the military aspect of it. But we did get a lot of the gigs and we got a lot of the best gigs. And a lot of times the Army and Navy would go with us on those gigs, like Waco, for example. Uh, Delta guys were with us at, at Waco and they would go with us in a lot of gigs because they would ride along and see how we did things. And the reciprocal agreement was we would go with them when they would do things so we because at that time There were only three primary kill houses in the United States Bragg uh, Dam Neck and Quantico we would had a regular training cycle So we'd go to Bragg one week. We'd go to well the CIA built one at Camp Perry uh, Shortly thereafter. So we'd go in a rotation. They'd come train with us. We had uh, uh, a joint aircraft responsibility. So we had a facility at Davis Monthan air force base and uh, The army had two fuselages. Navy had two fuselages. We had two right in the same parking lot essentially at uh, in in Tucson and And it was a very very close working relationship between those three entities mm. and that was before ground branch and that was before you know a, a lot of the different other groups.
0: Yeah, I can see the the a lot of interoperability there. Very much so. Yeah, you wanted to keep the edge sharp, and you guys were at the tip of the spear, and still continue to this day. You were an early um, member of that organization. I think you said right. it was generation eight. Yeah, which is by class of selection. Yeah. Um and you know you guys had a, a class of I believe you said fourteen or something like that, and then which seventy is a guys. Lar- I think it's
1: the largest group that. Uh, uh, seven, I guess, I think guys went through that time. I, I can't even remember the number now, uh, that came through that year, but it was very similar to the way, uh, six and Delta run very different selection processes. Mm-hmm. Basically, if you go to six, you come up through the teams, you're selected by guys, your you're peers, vetted, yeah. you're vetted, mm-hmm. and then you just kind of work into the team. And as long as you don't fuck up for a year, you you're, you're going to be good. <laughs> right. And that's kind of the way six works. <coughs> Delta is very different. Anybody. Uh, at least the last I knew when I was in, anybody could apply. You could be a cook in a, in a you know in a field kitchen in mm-hmm. Ford Hood or something. I mean, you could you could be anything and you could apply and you could get on. Mm-hmm. And so they were very, very different mechanisms. And the FBI was the same thing. Like I said, it was built on Delta. So we didn't have a combat experience protocol chain because most FBI agents don't get in a lot of gunfights. Mm-hmm. So you have to find a way to artificially create and evaluate uh, that, that same sang that same ability in combat. So the selection process- In a short period of time. In two weeks, yeah. man. So the selection's two weeks, but it, it's not a pleasant two weeks. So you basically get sleep disruption, no food, uh grueling physical endeavor and
0: shooting too there's a little shoot, shooting in there's a in ton work. of shooting it's, yeah
1: it's massive shooting so hrt selection is fascinating because they have very specific things they try to measure which have been tested over time and as you know most hrt operators now have very significant combat experience in either in in theater in afghanistan and iraq or in civilian law enforcement shootings in so many different types of conflicts in classified operations, renditions. So I, I, I don't follow it that much, but I do know there's a misperception in many online sites on what HRT does. They're not a SWAT team. They're a hostage rescue component. I think they're a tier one element and they have worked side by side with you and a lot of other guys in task force environments in open warfare. And I know classified operations, I could tell you about a couple of them that are, are absolutely insane. They do crazy shit. They do bloodshit work, or bloodshit work, you know, in, in foreign environments and in undercover operations. It is a it is a fascinating, fascinating organization that, other than a book I wrote 20 years ago, nobody knows anything about. Mm. So the selection process is: uh, you show up on a Anybody who's an FBI agent with a reasonable performance uh, background can apply. They take about, I think, typically take about 40 guys. Uh, for selection and Maybe somewhere around half make it through the selection Mm -hmm. without getting injured or something and then then they pick from that So some years they pick one person some years they pick five or six It just depends on the year and it never has to do with needs HRT Throughout time has always been shy of what it could be in terms of numbers because it's just not an environment. The FBI doesn't hire uh, Special agents to go to HRT to be warriors. They hire them to be Lawyers and doctors and
0: people investigators investigators
1: Mm -hmm. from long-term sophisticated white-collar cerebral crimes So the 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 federal government had to build this counterterrorism aspect Because of posse comitatus somewhere on the civilian side So they had to put it in DEA ATF marshals FBI. They had to put it someplace and they draw from that pool so that selection and a couple guys have died during selection, you know from from various things and and Ben brought back, but it's a, I don't think you can look at it at, at like the Q course or the long march or, or buds. You can't look at it in the same way because it, it's, a different me- uh, it's a different mechanism. It's extremely intense. It is uh, grueling to the point where the idea of selection is to. St- we don't care what you can do on your best day, we care what you can do on your worst. Mm. So they artificially strip away all of your defense mechanisms, then they put you in a decision-making situation with a gun and see what you do. Mm. So for example, I think I wrote about it in a book, but uh, the first Thursday, they break you down from Monday morning till the first Thursday, which is just four days, to where I remember sitting in a room, because you go through selection every year, right? Uh, You're only selected the first year, but you go through it with them every year as an operator. Mm But on Thursday, I remember the first time I saw it from the outside looking in. And they get you in a room at 2.33, 4 o'clock in the morning. All the guys on the team sit around you in a circle. And it's got the light bulb over your head like you see in a bad movie. And they say, Mike, what is your name? And the guy looks at you and goes, uh, what? You say, Mike, Michael Glover, what is your name? Mm.
0: And they can't say their name. Because they, they're so sleep-deprived and out of it.
1: You're so fucked up, yeah. you don't know your own name. Even when they say, Mike Glover, what is your name? <laughs> right. So if you can say your name, they know that you're not trying hard enough and, you, yeah. and, you're, and you're probably gonna, not going to make it. But wow. it's pretty wild. And you know that from SEER, going through SEER programs and going through a lot of the schools that you've gone through. There are a lot of schools like that where they break you down. But when you can break somebody down in 72 hours, that that shows you how easy it is to break a human being. Mm-hmm. So you see it in a lot of schools, you see it in SEER, you see it in, in real life applications, and, uh, and you see it elements of it in Ranger School, you see elements of it in Buds. you see elements of it in so many schools. But in terms of selection, you break a guy down in the first three days to where he doesn't know his own name and then you see what he does. Yeah. So it's sleep depri- deprivation, sleep dis- disruption, because lack of sleep is different and a little bit of sleep and changing the the circadian yeah. radium. Yeah. And hunger.
0: So you're you're completely suppressed all the time. Yes. And you're in this condition where they're just trying to see what you're made of. That's right. And, and you, they
1: give you a gun and make in live fire environment yeah. and, and see what you do in different things.
0: A lot of it with decision making and assessing your abilities to be cognitive and aware. Teamwork. Yeah, teamwork. Like and
1: everything is under observation. So, you know, and you've seen this in all these schools. There's nothing unusual or unique about HRT selection. It's just extremely well done <clears throat> to test human instinctive activity and decision making in a short period of time in a compressed Mm. period of time and it's it's a brilliant program i mean it's brilliantly put together in how fast they can strip and assess and select Mm. um but you know uh, i remember being in and i've been through various cia selection things and you go into a room and you're supposed to have a physical with a doctor and they they make you do odd things and you never know what's right and what's wrong Mm -hmm. right you never get any feedback um, but they would give you food and they'd see, like, for example, you'd have a team of five or seven guys and they'd give you one box lunch. It's a chicken wing, an apple, and two potato chips. And they see how the the team interacts with that food source. So one option is one guy steals at all the food. They've shown good decision-making and survival skills, but they fuck their buddies mm. and that's not good teamwork. Or you have the other side where somebody gives up all their food and says, no, I'm I'm a team player. You take the food. But you're not an effective team member, and you, you fuck up the whole mission because you didn't make a good decision on nutrition. So there's there's not always a right answer in these things, and you've seen it in schools that you've done over time. The assessments have to judge the right thing, and it's objective again. Like mm-hmm. I always come back to objective. You have you being the parent organization, Delta Six, SF Rangers, Marine Corps Fast Teams, uh, combat. Controllers, whatever the case may be in a special operations team task force 160 when you want a special decision maker You have to know what that decision maker is supposed to do Mm -hmm. so if you want a guy who's an individual athlete and can run for 85 miles, then they take the whole lunch if you want a team player you've got to feed the whole team Mm. and and HRT came up with a selection thanks to Delta that remarkably with remarkable Statistical effectiveness picks good people.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. I didn't never know. I never realized the, how comprehensive those that selection process. Every was.
1: single moment of that two week process is carefully scripted, and and put together in, in terms of psychology. So you know the the operators all wear the same thing. The operators always staring around and stare at everybody. They observe uh, without any feedback whatsoever. You can't smile. You mm-hmm. can't call them names, you can't haze, you can't do any of those things. But it creates a surreal environment where you are so sleep depraved and so fucked up that you don't even know your own name and you're surrounded by all these guys and you don't know what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. And and a typical event for uh, the HRT selection and other schools that I've been through is you'll get together and there'll be 30 guys in this group and somebody will come up with a card and they'll stand there without any interpersonal uh, interaction and they'll say, the following is an individual event The objective is, uh, under the following is an individual event of indeterminate duration. Your objective is to follow him, and that guy runs away. Mm. And you don't know if he's running a 100-yard dash, or you don't know if he's running 50 miles, and it could be either one of those two things. And you want to be number one because it's all competitive, Mm -hmm. but you never know what the objective is, and it creates a real different mindset because it's not just... Those guys that can grind. It's not just those guys that can do 500 push ups. It's not just those guys that are great shots. It's those guys who can exceed their own expectations in every single event with no feedback on how they were done. I mean, most of those events, you don't know if you finish first or last. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's,
0: um, which was what's weird about that is, you know, you, you had said that you went from the speech writing to HRT, you didn't have a military background. Zero. And, and a lot of people who, you know, even in your class, I think you said five people out of the seven, uh, only two of you didn't have the military background. What is your source of reference for staying in that without any context for background?
1: Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, I played team sports in high school and college, but in my opinion, and uh, in, in the opinion of, of, of guys in that process afterward, is that you can teach the vast majority of people to do push ups. You can teach a lot of people endurance. You can teach almost anybody to shoot pretty well. And over time, shoot them to shoot very well. What you can't teach is that underlying drive to persevere. Mm. And that's what you have. And that's what the guys uh, that you came up with, the guys from our community, have a quality that's not about being the best athlete. I mean, coincidentally, we were, we, we are the best athletes. And, but, Coincidentally, we are the best shooters. But that's not why we got hired for those jobs. We got hired from those jobs. Sorry about that. We got hired for those jobs because we have a quality uh, beneath our, our defense mechanisms. Mm. So I, I don't know what that quality is, but I don't think it has anything to do with them. I don't think you get it from the military. I think you take it to the military. Mm. And I always felt this way about combat. I've been, I've killed as many people and has been as in many combat situations as a lot of guys. And, and, and I've never been in the military. I've been to all the, I've been to military schools, Marine Corps, scout, scout, sniper schools. All the guys went to buds. We went to all the schools, but I can't stand up on veterans day or, or Memorial day. Cause I'm not a veteran, right. Mm-hmm. Which is a weird construct, but I've always said the same thing that I I never believed that I had PTSD. I think I had CTE. I think it was the overpressure, Mm -hmm. which we can talk about later on, maybe. But, uh, but I I don't think I ever had that because I always argued that a person takes into a situation or brings out of a situation what they brought in. Mm -hmm. So I know guys that stubbed their toe in new agent training in the FBI and, and failed out because it was so traumatic. And I know people that have gotten limbs blown off and went out to have a beer. So, and you do too. So I looked at that and said, I didn't, the fact that I had never been in the military did not really have an impact on HRT because they didn't want to buy somebody else's experience. They wanted to build it within that unit. Mm. So you built it in the army, but you didn't have a military experience before you went in the army. So mm. it's kind of the same question.
0: Yeah. It's like a, it's, it's like, um, it's the amplifier to expose what strengths and weaknesses you had in the first place. Exactly. And I believe that too. Cause I, yeah. uh, like, I don't, you know, I think, you know, when this whole concept that warriors are born or they're bred, I think it's a combination of both and I the agree. best warriors are the ones that are born, but they're also bred. You know, I agree. You've got to start with a foundation. I don't know what
1: that foundation is, but it is, I, I don't think it's easily recognizable. I mean, you know, as well as I do, you can never tell how somebody's gonna perform in a fight mm-hmm. until they're in a fight. Yeah. And, and I know guys, every, everything from getting in a bar fight to mixed martial arts, to boxing, to gunfighting to extended tour combat,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that you don't know who that person is. They may look, you know, now we live in a world where you look at guys online, there's these big guys covered in tattoos and beards and hair, you know, everybody knows that look. I know tons of guys like that who were complete utter pussies. Yeah, And I know guys that are wiry, scrawny, uh, they don't look like anything. Kevin's and right are, there. I, Kevin. I didn't want to say it, I didn't want to say it, but Kevin is a bad motherfucker. He is. But he also looks like a lot of the guys in the community. A lot yeah. of the guys in the community are 5'8", 165 pounds. Unassuming. Unassuming. You would never know it in the world, yeah. but they are the most capable, Yeah. Uh, Unbeatable human beings this world has ever ever produced.
0: That's a great that's a great observation. That I, I I mean Kevin's definitely unassuming, but I know he'll kill anybody. Kevin <laughs> is just a flat out. I don't even
1: have to explain him, except that he is the highest evolution of what a human could be from 100%, our world. Yeah. But if you saw him walking down the street, yeah, you'd say, "Hey, buddy, can you shine my shoes?" Sorry, Kevin. Yeah. But you are. I mean, you are. That's nothing but a compliment, because. We listen. We know those guys. I've yeah. seen pictures of you, and yeah. I've seen you being that guy with the beard. And yeah. look, I'm covered in tattoos, and I used to look like somebody back in the day too. And uh, but that doesn't have any bearing on who we are. Mm. And we've all worked with those guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think you cannot tell from a person's appearance in this day of of social media personas what that really means.
0: Yeah, that's yeah, a great observation. The quiet
1: professional, the unassuming uh, wiry. I, I don't know. I, 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 think it's, it's not what you look like. It's not what you have learned. It's not if I had military experience, it's none of those things. It's what you are inside mm-hmm. and you don't know what that is until you test it.
0: Yeah. I like the, that the evaluation is in the reality that that's the true assessment, because I've seen guys who are very good at emulating a battle drill, right? Yeah. They're very good at, uh, in training at excelling, but I've seen those same guys, those same guys who um, are very good at emulation crumple uh, in a gunfight, crumple in a uh, explosion. You know, like I always, I always tell, the, tell the story about my first gunfight it wasn't a gunfight. It was a rocket attack. So I had prepared for battle drills because of FM 7-8 and understanding small unit tactics but nobody prepared me for being on the receiving end of a 107 millimeter rocket.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that, Who
0: could? Yeah. That, How are you going to do a test
1: drive on that? Yeah,
0: right? it, it has a kill radius of 200 <laughs> yards that sounds like a, a space shuttle <laughs> impacting in your environment and, and everybody's face and you know going, this is real, this is really happening. When you start to, I mean, I, I think you know in my first gunfight in that context, I was too amplified. I made mistakes. I did things that I shouldn't have done. And, and I tried to hold my shit together, but I, I fought through it. But then in the next gunfight, in that first gunfight, I had auditory exclusion because I probably was capping out you know, neurologically, sympathetic nerve systems off the, off the chain, I'm in fight or flight, but the next gunfight was different. I was able to articulate and um, you know, understand my environment and relay communication because I had all the lessons learned. But I was prepared for that when other dudes were hiding in the fetal yeah. underneath the Humvee. Um, but you're right. I think I think the assessment is never the emulation or the persona that people have on, especially in this day and age in social media. It's it's the literal literal expedition they've taken in their life and the assessment and experience in reality. And that's what's different about you is because, uh, especially in your HRT career, you were assessed. You were in these different circumstances that tested your resolve and that changed your life forever. I want to talk about some of those because your, your first duty position in HRT wasn't what you wanted in the first place. No. Yeah. You didn't want to be an assaulter or you didn't want to be a sniper. No. You it, wanted to be an assaulter.
1: Yeah. And I think uh, at that time where my head was at the time, I, I really truly thought, okay, I'm just going to do something else. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to go see if I can get in, uh, get transferred to Moscow or something. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I thought I, I, I didn't want to be a sniper. I wanted to be, I I know this sounds kind of controversial and kind of like an asshole thing to say, but it's true. In those days, I kind of thought being a sniper was not an honorable thing to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't want to hide in the bushes and shoot somebody in the head. I wanted to go in the door on a slap charge and go hand to hand, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just what my mind was at the time. But that was ignorance on my part. I didn't realize how different and important all the components were in an operation Mm. and a couple guys, much smarter than I am, on HRT sat me down and they said, "Listen, don't be a douchebag. This is a critical element of the mission. It's got nothing to do with what you want what you want to do. It has to do what the mission requires and what society needs." Mm-hmm. And that was a great growth point point in my life, where I realized that uh, that my perception of the job and the reality of the job were two different things. And when I realized that, then I felt really badly, and I said, "Yeah, this is it." And ironically. I think that was the right gig for me. I think mm. that uh, I have enormous respect uh, in so many different ways for guys in that world, but I have a special place obviously for, for snipers. Yeah. The, 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 the level of competence, the level of personal sacrifice and endurance and discipline is crazy. I mean, people just really don't have any idea. It's not about the shot, it's about getting to the shot and getting mm. away from the shot, right? And uh, so anyway. I I did not want it at at first, but it's exactly what I I needed.
0: To be a qualified sniper, a requirement for you guys is you had to go to uh, Marine Corps Scout Sniper School?
1: Yeah, in those days, because it was still, you know, the community was new. People take things for granted now because of the movies and because of the books and because we've seen war for, for 20 years. But back then, it was the secret world. I had no reference point. I couldn't go online and say, what does this group do and how do they do it? It was just, you just got exposed to things and we just kind of made it up as we went along. At that time, the way the community was put together, you'd get cross-trained, everybody got cross-trained as assaulters and you could be used as an assaulter, but then you'd get an additional discipline. So we had a maritime team. So we, everybody would go to Budge, everybody would go through some na- maritime training, but we had a maritime team, that was their responsibility. We had uh, a tubular targets and all they did was planes. Other guys would go, but that was their primary responsibility. And we had uh, the sniper specialty. So you go through knots, you uh, become operational as an HRT operator. And then if you're chosen as a sniper, then you have to go through the additional training, just like you'd go to budge or jump school or any other specialty Mm -hmm. training. And it just so happened that sniper training was the Marine Corps school at Quantico, which at the time I thought was the best. School in the world.
0: Yeah. And, and at the time it was. At the time
1: it was, you know? yeah. So, I mean, I know you guys, in, in deference to what you've put together, it's a, it's a much bigger world now and uh, it's a much different world. But back then in that day, you know, that, the, the John Unerdle scope on a 308, on a Remington 700, uh, we had our own armors, but, a, you know, a tooled up uh, 308 on a Remington 700 with the Unerdle scope was the finest weapons platform on the planet Earth. And, and a lot of the teams didn't have in the army and Navy didn't, most of the guys did not have those unertal scopes, which had a, uh, the first bullet drop compensator mm-hmm. and they were just spectacular in every way. So anyway, you go to the school, if you get through the school, uh, you get, uh, put on a sniper team and, and away you go. And that's the way it worked in those days.
0: Operationally, what, um, do you remember your first operation and, and how that played out? First
1: classified operation or the first just deployment?
0: First deployment.
1: Yeah, the first deployment was a prison riot in Talladega, Alabama, where they had a riot and the prisoners were going to, um, the prisoners were, I, they'd either started to kill, that's a long time ago, sorry, I, I don't mean to belittle the mission, but uh, but it was a, a prison and HRT had to break into a maximum security prison in Talladega, Alabama,
0: mm. and
1: used what I think to this day is the largest breaches ever used in civilian law enforcement. And we tamped the charge, with a suburban. So you line up, you know, phase line green, you line up on the wall and people who have never ridden a big charge have no fucking clue what it's like to get, Mm -hmm. to ride one of those blasts. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's like getting tackled by a, by a, it's crazy. And this uh, is a wall charge, right? We're breaking into a prison on a wall charge. You're blowing a wall. To reinforce concrete. Wow. And there were multiple breaches. So they tamped the charges or tamped the, the, uh, the breach points with suburbans to try to keep from killing the guys before they went in. And it flipped those Suburbans up like they were matchsticks flying through the air. Wow. That's how big it was. So that's not that big a deal for a hit in a military target, but for a civilian law enforcement hit, that was a big that was a big thing to witness.
0: What was your feeling after that hit? Were you like, I'm home, I'm exactly where I need to be?
1: Uh, I don't know, to be honest with you. I, I think at that point, I always had a different aspect, a, a different perspective on these things. And, and again, I know this sounds like an asshole thing to say, but I just always believed, yeah, this is the way it's supposed to be. Right. I I think I told you I got in a gunfight the very first day on the job, FBI agents still get in gunfights or or very seldom, but I just had experiences that were very different than what a lot of people would have in those, in those things. But I just always thought, oh yeah, this is the way it's supposed to be. Mm. So it's, it might sound a little arrogant and I don't, I don't mean it to be, but I, I always felt this weird sense that I was supposed to be there, and it was supposed to be that way. Mm. So, uh, overseas things, these crazy things you fall into in a classified world, and then Waco and Ruby Ridge and and shootings and all of those things. I, I never sat back and thought, "Boy, this is weird." Mm. I always just thought, "Wow, you know, this is Tuesday." Uh,
0: Ruby Ridge is uh, a hugely controversial. Um, operation and I think i 've talked to other leo guys on the on the Ruby Ridge thing, and it doesn 't seem to be obviously controversial because you have facts you have the the right perspective in a way because you have information that a lot of people aren 't privy to, and then if you look on the other side, super controversial in fact i 've done at Philcraft i 've done a post on Ruby Ruby Ridge and Waco. And I'm, I am even taken back and surprised by the amount of anti, uh, maybe it's establishment, maybe it's government, maybe it's LEO sentiment against um, law enforcement in those circumstances. Right. Um, what was your experience like with Ruby Ridge? How did you get contacted? How did that kind of manifest itself?
1: Yeah. And, and look, I agree with all those things. I'm not saying there's a right or wrong answer about Ruby Ridge. I certainly understand both sides of the story. All I can do is offer the facts as I recall them, as I've testified, as I've been through all of this for years and years and years, and people can make up their own mind. Mm -hmm. But I don't think ultimately it is what most people think. Here's the reality as I recall it. Uh, We're a team. We work in a compound and you never know when a mission is going to come. It's just like a fireman or a SWAT team response or a uh, anything where you have an emergency and you respond, right? That's what we did. We were not a SWAT team We didn't use mirrors dog, Well, they have dogs now, but we didn't use mirrors We didn't run in and say drop the gun. We were not designed to be uh, a strictly law enforcement organization HRT was designed as a Tier one counterterrorism hostage rescue component. It was a military unit within the civilian government because of those provisions of posse comitatus that's what we were right Mm -hmm. so now people look with no understanding of what hrt is really all about and maybe this gives a slightly different perspective so we have a training compound in quantico virginia the fbi academy is inside the quantico marine corps reservation and hrt had had a very small secretive component within that within that so uh like you or like any military compound you uh train every day There or on the road and then when something happens you get deployed just like a fireman or an EMT or anything else exact same mechanism so sitting around one day and Usually the word would come from headquarters to the front office because it's a small thing the team leaders would get called up front they'd get briefed on the possibility of a deployment and depending on the How imperative it seemed you would go back and get your guys ready and because we were we were uh, completely international and because we were four season, you'd need a little bit of lead time. We were supposed to be airborne in two hours from deployment. So you don't know if you're going to the mountains, you don't know if you're going to the desert, you don't know if it's a maritime operation, you don't know anything. So you need a little time to put your kit together, right? So you got a jungle bag, you got a, a winter bag, you got a mountain bag, you could go to Antarctica, you could go to Las Vegas, you, you never know, urban. So we we're sitting around, I forget what day of the week it was, but you know, I wrote it down someplace in, in that book. And uh, so the word came out that there was a, a gig in Idaho, and everybody goes, Idaho, what's that like? Because you couldn't just get on weather.com now or, or an app. There was no information. <clears throat> and people that people take things for granted now that didn't exist in those days. You couldn't Google anything. You have n- literally no information except what you're told. So they said uh, the very basics that a federal agents had been involved in a gunfight in an isolated wooded area in northern Idaho, bring a... A a cold weather, uh, wooded, uh, rural bag. Right. So we put our gear together. We went up to our our air asset, jumped on a probably I don't know it was maybe like a I don't think it was a C5 but it might have been a 130 but anyway 17 I think it was a C17 and uh, we flew to I think it was Spokane Washington uh, got there late at night early in the morning no sleep uh, work through the night drive out to this potato field outside this place in uh, Ruby Ridge, which was just a geographical feature, not the name of the town. And uh, uh, by the time we got all set up, it was morning, so we'd been up for 24 hours or more, uh, deployed out there, and we got together in this gym, or gymna- or this, I think it was a, an armory, actually, a, a National Guard armory. And they sat down and they said, look, we've got a shootout involving federal agents, marshals, who had been doing a surveillance to deploy... A or to serve uh, an an arrest or search warrant on this guy His name is Randy Weaver. He lives up there with another guy named Kevin Harris. They live in a cabin. They are survivalists and One of them is a former special forces. One of them is a former Green Beret. He's got military training. They are uh, Living off-grid these marshals went up. Somebody started a gunfight and people are dead so you're a fireman, you know you got a fire. You're an EMT, you know you got a car wreck. You, you're, going, you're responding to something. So nobody had any information. We didn't know if they were in a cabin. We didn't know if, they had, if we had a perimeter. We, we knew that we had no perimeter around the cabin. We knew they had long guns, military training, and that they had been in a firefight with federal agents 12 hours earlier or whatever the timeline was, 24 hours earlier, something like that. So we go, all right, well, all right, what do you want us to do? And uh, so this guy named Les Hazen, his name is public record now, great guy. Uh, he was the sniper team coordinator, former sniper, one of the early guys on HRT. He came out and he read what at that time was traditional law enforcement practice of reading law uh, rules of engagement, right? In the military, you're going to get, it depends on the situation. In civilian law enforcement, they're more you got to be really careful, obviously, in a civilian operation. You see what we're going through right now as a society, right? So he came out and said, at that point, and, and I've said this over time, I interpreted the rules of engagement different than other guys, but the FBI says, when you join the FBI, that everybody who's an FBI agent adheres to the same rules of deadly force, which is deadly force shall not be employed except in circumstances that present death or grievously bodily harm to you or a civilian. In other words, the default FBI rules of deadly force are, you don't shoot somebody unless they're gonna shoot you or hit you with a car or kill you, right? So the default mechanism is not to shoot. We went up there and Les Hazen said something, and this is public record, so the fact that I don't recall the specific words is just my memory, but the specific words essentially said Go up there and if they come running out and you perceive them to be a threat you can shoot them and it said something like can and should be used so a Listener now can look this up. It's public record. It's been disclosed numerous times The fact that I can't remember the exact words is just 20 years. It's they're written down, right? But my perception was I'm an FBI agent even though I'm on this counterterrorism team and if they come out and I shoot somebody I sure as shit better be certain that it's gonna hold up in a court of law because you're going to a shooting review board, you're going to get indicted, you're going to go before Congress. I knew all those things. So we, I think we had seven snipers, it was pouring rain, it was about 35 degrees, really bad conditions. We uh, land nav up to this thing, couple hours, and I still haven't slept, now, now I've been up for 36 hours, 35 degrees roughly, uh, and I just lie down behind my scope. I find a hide, There were three of us, and there were groups of two in my group with three guys, and we lie on this rocky outcrop, and I'm looking down somewhere around 200 yards. I don't remember the exact distance, and I'm looking at this cabin with a low-hanging porch. You can see it online. Everybody can look it up, and it's just a cabin. I grew up with those cabins. I grew up in the woods. I grew up in almost the exact same environment. I knew the weather. I knew everything about it. There was nothing unusual. The only thing I didn't know is if those guys were in the woods or if they were in the cabin. I knew they'd been in a shootout with other guys. I thought they're going to be in a shootout with me. I felt completely comfortable, but I think I'm going up there, and there's a likely going to be some kind of a shootout. So I lie down. I pull my sniper rifle out of my drag bag. It's a 308 700 action on a bipod with an inertial scope. I flip the caps. I pull out a lens cap because the condensation—you can't see shit, right? I put up my spotting scope. The two guys next to me on my sniper partners next to me. And within a very short period of time, I see these guys come running out of the cabin with long guns. One had a mini 14. I forget what the other guy had. It's Randy Weaver, Kevin Harris, and a third person who I thought was their son, Sammy, um, who ended up being their daughter, I guess, because Sammy was uh, was killed in a gunfight. Um, But anyway, so I'm lying there somewhere around 200 yards away. And here come two guys with long guns running straight at me. So you go 200 yards you're hiding in the woods don't be a pussy and i think yeah you're absolutely right until you're there and you know 24 hours before there's been a shootout and they're running right at you with long guns how did they know i was there i got no clue maybe they got other people in the woods there was so much variability what i didn't know far far exceeded what i did know so i line them up in the scope And I wasn't thinking about any rules of engagement, except that if they get in the wood line, it's a pitched fight, and it's even. And I don't want an even fight. I want all the cards, right? That's the way we work. That's our world, right? So they come running out, and uh, in some sequence of events, I line them up in my crosshairs. We had mill dots. I'm reading wind. I'm I'm leading them, and I've got a two-pound trigger, and I got 1.789 pounds of pressure on my trigger, and I'm trying to shoot them. And they would go from tree, uh, it's foggy, it's raining, and they would go from tree to rock. You know, you've seen this. You, a sniper's a sniper, it doesn't matter where you go. It's, um, it's a game of millimeters. It's tiny decisions, split second, and it's a tough thing to do under the best of circumstances. So anyway, uh, I'm going from, I can't get the shot. I don't have a shot. I hear a shot ring out, and what happened is this. Lon Horiuchi, and I use that name because it's public sector, great guy, I think he's a West Point graduate. He was a, uh, he's just he's a world-class guy. Very, very bright. Family guy. Uh, none of these things that people write about him. Uh, an incredibly capable operator. Very, very experienced. And he decided uh, the same thing that I decided, which was to shoot. So as you know, if you're a sniper, your entire world, I shoot with, two, with both eyes open, but Uh, In certain circumstances, but basically you're looking through a tube and there's Mm -hmm. no world outside that tube And if you're shooting somebody from a distance, especially in a law enforcement shot You have two options you can trail or at the time I don't know what you guys do now But at the time you track them almost like skeet shooting which is incredibly difficult and ineffective or you ambush where you pick a spot where you know They're gonna go you hold on that spot when they cross a mill dot you calculate and pull off, right? That's the way we used to do it anyways and it's a very difficult thing. And I always say that if you, it's the same thing uh, in, in baseball, that you're trying to hit a fastball. If you hit a fastball in the major leagues and you get one out of three, you're an all-star. Mm-hmm. If you're in law enforcement and you miss one out of a thousand, you're going to jail. And the consequences are extremely high and it happens very quickly. But again, go back to selection. Lon's an incredibly capable guy. He's as as good at this as anybody in the world. He does exactly what he meant to do. He held on the spot, which is the front door because he knows Randy Weaver is going toward the front door. And if he gets in there, he's barricaded with long guns. We got a pitched fight. You can disagree with the decision, but I, I certainly understand it. And I made the same decision. He held on the door because he knows that's where those guys are going. They retreat to the, or they run back to the house. I wouldn't call it a retreat. They run back to the house. And when he gets to the door Lon pulls off the shot so that the bullet and a moving target intersect at the same spot You get an effective sniper shot, right? Through bizarre Circumstance, but it happens all the time in our world the door opens just as he pulls the trigger and his wife sees him coming Opens the door to let him back in the house when she did the door opened Randy Weaver and Kevin Harris hit the front door and Vicky Weaver stepped behind the door to open it. All in the same instant, the bullet went exactly where Law named it, but through the door, through the glass, through the curtain and hit Vicky Weaver and killed her. Mm. And it was just
0: one shot that, that was shot.
1: That shot, yeah. yeah. Uh, there was another shot, but, um, but that's, that's Ruby Ridge. Everything that happened after that, uh, nobody really cares about. Everything that happens up to that, is conjecture what happened in that moment was a bizarre set of circumstances that you can call right wrong or go to hell but at that time in civilian law enforcement in the united states uh, we had not made that transition to what people now accept as, as reasonable behavior so uh Every, you know, we went before the the Senate, there were Senate hearings. They did, they actually, various agencies actually executed search warrants on the HRT building. Guys showed up with search warrants to search our desks, to search all our go bags, all our equipment, all the expended rounds, all the sniper logs, everything we had. And uh, there was a grand jury uh, to indict for murder uh, on that. So there have been, whatever people think. Whether you disagree or give a shit about what I'm saying right now, there's endless records of what happened at Ruby Ridge. It just comes down to a pers- to perspective.
0: What's your personal perspective on everything that took place and your role in it what, after accumulating and then obviously decades later looking at it? Well,
1: I'll use this as an example. When we got called before Congress, the seven snipers, was on the front page of the New York Times, photographs and everything else, we got called before Congress. The, US, the United States Senate for hearings, that's how big a deal it was, right? You don't have Senate hearings for that much. They called us before the United States Senate. Every guy in a team got a high-powered lawyer, Gloria Tenzing and all these high-powered lawyers, most of whom did it for gratis or for free. And uh, I said, fuck that, I'm not getting a lawyer. <clears throat> I said, I didn't do anything wrong. In fact, I did what was right for the American public. I'm a patriot and I'm sacrificed, whatever else. So I went into the Senate hearings. Everybody had their team of lawyers. I'm sitting next to my buddies. I think they all made good decisions to have lawyers, but whatever. Orrin Hatch stands up and he goes, Mr. Whitcomb, I got to advise you that blah, 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 blah. You don't have a lawyer. You should have a lawyer. Why don't you have a lawyer? And I said, because I didn't do anything wrong. I don't need a lawyer. And I said that to the United States Senate. I said that to the American people and I'm saying it to you now. I feel like under the circumstances, we did the best that we could. I think that Lon made the right decision. He did it incredibly well. And a, and a terrible f- fluke of, of fate or whatever led to the tragic death of Vicki Weaver. And it is just that. It, it is the tragic death uh, in an operation which the best of human beings under uh, ideal circumstances still oftentimes goes wrong.
0: What, what did it change for you personally, if anything, after the fact?
1: Nothing. Mm. The only thing is I think I felt badly about two things. One, my testimony was slightly different because because of, you know, if you've ever been in the mountains in those conditions, sound does different things. So what I heard didn't correspond necessarily with what guys heard next to me. It was not really substantive changes, but my perceptions were different. That was one thing. The second thing is <clears throat> that I felt some remorse i think in the sense that i didn't take the shot because i felt a failure to a certain extent because i had made the same decision that lon had made and i never and i didn't take it it wasn't because i didn't want to i just didn't want to pull off a round that was going to hit a tree or a rock or a car or something like that so it didn't change me in any way uh it just uh, my own personal probably very odd perception was that i failed in a certain way and that uh and and I was surprised at how I heard slightly different things
0: I noticed you know you're you're very you're very uh, good at creating uh the words to articulate how you felt in that moment in the book and then after the fact, and I noticed you hung on to that moment in which you wanted to break the shot where you felt like you did break it or you're, you wanted to break it, but you couldn't break it. And it was like this, and I, 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 I'm contextualizing this because I've had this instance, me and Kevin, I talk about certain instances we've been in where um, you live with the results. You have to, but you're trying to fight through something that you wish at one moment you had the opportunity to do. Is that a form of regret or is that a form of learning and moving forward and and understanding it is what it is? Fascinating
1: question from a person who's been there and maybe you and I and a small number of people who will listen to this can understand it because they have that perspective No swinging dick can understand what it's like until they do it Mm -hmm. Nobody I don't give a fuck who you are. You can read all the shit you want on internet You can watch all the movies you want You can be high and mighty and righteous. You can think you can do better. You can do all those things. Until you live that experience, which is life and death at your trigger or your experience, you can comment on it because it's America. You can comment anything you want, but I'm not going to listen to you. You have to have that experience yourself. And every person that does it processes it differently. My process is probably quite different than a lot of people, but I don't, I think that I have not, responded to and processed the, uh, the passing of life as emotionally as a lot of people. Uh, some people say I have a lexithemia, which is just a way of saying that I don't, that my emotions maybe are, are flatter than some people's, but I did not feel, nor do I feel regret in violent encounters I've been involved with in my life. I've, I've tried to look at them as any other experience and try to be Logical in the way I, I I look at them Was I effective or was I not and that could be a, a bar fight. It could be a competitive fight golden gloves It could be combat. It could be civilian. It could be a CIA gig It could have been any of those different things But I I don't really think that I've looked on any of those with regret. I've looked and tried to do better I've felt sympathy Waco for example, if you want to talk about Waco. I've been back to Waco <clears throat> Excuse me four times. I played in the band that, that became, after David Koresh died, uh, a new guy came in and took over the church and still had a band. So I've gone back to those places and gone through them again and say, what happened here? How did that happen? How did I end up? I've been very introspective about it and I've tried to be logical about it, but I don't think it really is, is regret. It's uh, some different mechanism.
0: Yeah, I appreciate your candor on that because you're absolutely right. Unless they have seen through your eyes and lived that experience, then you know again free to comment but you take it with a grain of salt
1: yeah you do and look we live in the the golden age of communication right every single person has an attitude about something and it doesn't have to be really you I mean you could have a a fat dude sitting on a couch in a trailer park in Des Moines Iowa claiming that he's a you know a real guy and say anything they want a lot of time it's nonsense there's no filter or accountability anymore so you see uh tremendous uh numbers of opinions that don't mean anything yeah so anyway I, I i don't really care I know what i've lived
0: what was the what was the guys just before we move on what was the guys feeling um when they heard the dude was a green beret uh, like a special forces guy i didn't matter really much uh I think in those days you know how it is you get
1: you focus on a mission, you take all the information you can get, and you do the best you can with it right yeah. so say, well, he's one of the most highly trained military guys in the country, Uh, a capable guy. He's got long guns. But I was much more interested in the fact that he'd been in a shootout with federal agents. And killed at this point. He had already killed. Yeah, that's right. Bill Deegan.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, Man. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's notable, obviously, in U.S. history for... You know, I think the biggest thing that came out of, of
1: Ruby Ridge in this conversation or any other is law enforcement is like... Uh, A.D. B.C. AD, right? A divider in time. Ruby Ridge defined a before and after in law enforcement. Things changed after Ruby Ridge. Coincidentally, we went from there right to Waco, and those two were closely aligned. But Ruby Ridge really was the first time where things went wrong. The public stood up and said, there's something going on here. And, and we can't overlook this. In those days, everybody was talking about Zog, the Zion. Zionist occupational government you guys probably don't remember that too young for that yeah, I heard that I remember that term, but the but there was a huge white supremacist Conspiracy theory movement in the United States. It was big and it was prominent and a lot of people wrote that into the equation To the point where we had our own air assets, right? We had 412s and little birds I think we, we had a couple uh, blackhawks civilian blackhawks for a while, but we had our own air assets in addition to task force 160 and uh, they, the, they being the FBI made us repaint the flat black uh, tactical element of all of our air, airframes, paint them blue because the, the reaction was that the government, the federal government was becoming the Zionist occupational government. And there was, uh, it, it was a big deal. There was a huge underlying sentiment of mistrust of the US government at the time of Ruby Ridge and Waco and I think it's very easy to overlook that, but it was it was powerful. It was absolutely a big deal to the point where they changed. They, being the FBI, changed their public perception
0: of threat resolution. Did the rules of engagement for you guys? Because when this whole thing, when we heard it on the book, and me and Kevin were talking about it, we've been there before, right? We've been in in theaters of war where you get a rules of engagement brief from a commander from a JAG officer from whoever and a lot of things are are not sugar coated but they're just not they're they're left up to your interpretation as an individual operator and and some of that's for the good and some of it's for like liability and the bad but did you have a sense that the rules of engagement that you received there which were in contrast different than you had received before continued To change or did they get more clearly defined or how did that? stand?
1: look, I think that's a fantastic question and the the bottom line is FBI agents are the FBI hires people who are rule followers to be FBI agents right certain personality type And they feel responsibility to uphold the Constitution and people need to remember that the FBI investigates civil violations by law enforcement officers. So FBI is so let's say you saw something like the uh, George Floyd killing that would have been investigated by the FBI under federal statute as a uh, misuse of force by by a law enforcement officer. So not only is the FBI a law enforcement agency, but they're also tasked with enforcing proper protocols from other law enforcement. And FBI agents tend to be some of the most highly educated people in law enforcement as well. It's very difficult to get in, so it's very, if you don't have a master's degree applying to the FBI you're probably not gonna get in. Mm -hmm. That's just very likely. So I'm not just associating higher education with worth. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that there's a difference between an 18 year old kid coming out of high school and becoming a military police officer and somebody ending up as an experienced FBI agent. There is a life experience difference. So if you're an FBI agent, you should have, by our own estimation, a much more highly evolved sense of the use of deadly force. You're not gonna get the guy that's gonna go out with poor training, very few life experiences, get into conflict and shoot somebody. These guys, FBI agents, federal agents in general, are probably gonna be more circumspect in the way they apply deadly force. So that said, the hostage rescue team was a civilian law enforcement mechanism with a military operation. There's no way to overstay that. We were a hostage rescue component, not a SWAT team, not a special operations team, a CERT team. It's a hostage rescue team. And they had, we didn't talk to people. We didn't say drop your guns. We were designed to go in a room, kill the bad guys, save the good guys and call it a day. So Ruby Ridge was a different application. It's like like taking a, a race car and using it to paint a house. I mean, they had nothing to do with each other. So that's the element. Deadly force within that perspective did not change for me in any way because I always thought the FBI rules of deadly force apply the same across the board. You can't change them by circumstance. So the answer is great question, but no, in my mind, nothing changed.
0: Mm. So this happens, and how how much longer after? I, I think it was August of '92. Yes. Um, yeah, I think it was August. Yeah, Yeah. you guys get notified Shortly after Ruby Ridge. It's not that long, but it's um, Several months it's in people's heads and minds because it was all over the media I remember even as a child how much media coverage it got Um, You get the call to deploy to Waco. Yeah Waco. So look Many people know Ruby Ridge very controversial
1: for obvious reasons and we could talk about it all day long Uh, But it was very, it happened quickly, it was uh, resolved quickly, and it is what it is. Waco's a whole different gig. Waco is kind of historic because of the size of the the loss of life. I mean, 80-something people died in that. It was protracted over a period of, what, two or three months, Mm -hmm. and it was an international story, and everybody has an opinion on Waco, especially right now because of this Netflix documentary, right, with Taylor Kitsch. So, uh, Waco's a slightly different thing for me. HRT, because of its various missions, had a climbing team for high angle targets. You gotta get into a skyscraper, you gotta climb an elevator shaft, or wrap down off the roof, whatever else. So, we had a climbing team. I was a member of the climbing team, and we were in Tucson, Arizona, on a climbing trip, when we got the word that we were eating lunch in a restaurant, and we got the word that there was something going on at Waco, Texas. Everybody said what you always say, where the hell's Waco, Texas? Get on a plane. We flew to Waco. And the guys on the climbing team were the first members of HRT to arrive. We waited in this big hangar for all of our gear. Everybody flew in. We went out, got eyes on target, saw kind of the same circumstances. Another federal agency had been in a shootout, in this case, ATF. Lot of loss of life, probably on both sides. No perimeter, chaos, dead bodies. Uh, What the hell is going on? Who can come in and resolve this thing? The biggest shit storm imaginable in America we get all the shit storms so we go in and uh, the first thing i did was we got deployed to a house with a vantage not very far away and i set up a 50 on the roof as if you're going to use a 50 in civilian law enforcement doesn't happen all that much but that seemed like the application and uh so uh, i think it's going to come down to your questions but it became this long protracted babysitting operation for the most part
0: when when you when you got on um or in position in your FFP and your setting up and you don't understand the magnitude of what's taking place. Did you have any ideas or did you have any thoughts that maybe occurred to you then that reminded you of Ruby Ridge in that circumstance? Did it, or, or was that all left and behind?
1: Yeah, I personally didn't equate the two in any way. They were, t- I, I'd done a couple other gigs in between, uh, Oconus and, Ruby Ridge was a big deal, but it was time, you know, in, in that world, you do an investigation as a law enforcement officer, spe- specifically an FBI agent, and you might work a case for a very long time. It goes to court. It's a long grinding aspect of federal justice, right? FBI investigations can take years. Our job, like I said, for the hostage rescue team was designed to be in and out. Everybody else does all the work. They tee up the hit. You make your entry save the good guys and go home. It was an acute onset resolution entity. That's what we did. That's what you did. And uh, just like you guys, you you hit a high value target, you go home, you get some sleep, you get up the next day, you put an op together and you go do it, right? It's the exact same thing that we did. So no, I didn't think or have anything to do with Ruby Ridge at that point. This thing came up, moved on with life. And all of a sudden we're here at this I mean, Waco was imposing, right? It's a big building in the middle of this big field in Texas. And and it was a real deal. I mean, a lot of people got shot. And you could see the video. I mean, it was uh, was a big deal. So we went in thinking that we, that David Koresh's people, his mighty men, I think he called them, had been shot up. They were on their heels. Koresh himself was wounded. We thought, I can't speak for everybody on the team, but I thought very clearly we were gonna go in, set up, we we're gonna hit him at four o'clock the next morning, and that was gonna be it. I thought we were going in the next morning. We set up and didn't hit him the next morning. And then this grinding mechanism, I think because of Ruby Ridge, started to slow things down. Janet Reno's the attorney general, Bill Clinton's the president. All of a sudden you've got this uh, FBI response to a federal agency getting shot up months after Ruby Ridge. So everybody was hyper tuned to it in the political side Everybody was hyper tuned to it on the media side and everybody was hyper tuned to it on the law enforcement side And we just got handed another plate of shit. So we HRT Had to deploy and set up an, a perimeter the very first thing you have to do in any crisis of that situation is make sure You know what's inside and what's outside right at that Waco and you've all seen pictures I'm sure there was a house at the front which we designated Sierra one And there was a house in the back, which we designated Sierra 2. And that was it. There was nobody on the east. There was nobody on the west. We had two points, front and back, black side, white side. And we set up our two sniper components to gather intel, right? That's what you do. You shoot one thousandth of 1% of the time, and the rest of the time, you're gathering intel. And we did that. And it went on and on and on. The negotiators came in. The negotiators tried to save it peaceably, which is great. That's what we should do. But once we knew we weren't going in to resolve it, within 12 hours of the initial shootout i figured you know it was going to go on forever and it did
0: was there was there criteria that you guys knew of that would initiate you know you guys like most hostage rescue elements keep guys on standby to to conduct a hasty assault just in case hostages start dying and i'm curious to see in the chain of command whether you guys were being dictated what you would do tactically because of the policymakers. Yeah, great question. And this is the same
1: thing that happened at Ruby Ridge. We had a small, we had a very finite group of guys. At that time, HRT was 50 shooters, right? And 50 shooters gets wrapped up really fast because if you got to deploy a perimeter, you got to send out, you only got 24, 25 snipers to cover the entire perimeter at a standoff, which is a pretty thin picket for a lot of those gigs. And when we went up on Ruby Ridge, we thought we were going up there for a couple hours. We didn't have any NVGs. We didn't have any clothes. We didn't have any food. We didn't have any water. We didn't have anything. And it, it ended up being a longer thing. Waco was the same sort of thing. But the, we s- spent the night. The next day, we had to put in a perimeter. So we got in some ATVs. We got some Bradleys, right? And we knew they had two Brad- had two uh, Barrett 50s. And we didn't know if a Bradley could take a 50. So... Uh, and we didn't know where they were. So there are all these rumors. Because you got to remember, David Koresh, Vernon Howell, was a, the leader of this organization. Some would call it a cult, religious organization. I don't care what you call it. But the reason the ATF uh, launched the, the what, what will we call it? They tried to, to serve a search warrant, right? It looked like an assault, and it led to a shootout. But the reason ATF did that, the underlying predicate case was that he, had, was using, he was buying automatic Sears to put in making semi-automatic weapons automatic, and that he had grenade components. <clears throat> so we knew unequivocally, based on the ATF investigation, that he had automatic weapons, we knew that he had grenade components, and we knew he just shot the living dog shit out of this ATF team no matter what you say about the ATF. All those things are true. All those things are true, yeah. and you could watch them on TV. I mean, that was a hell of a shootout, right? And, and guys were dead, lots of people were dead. In civilian law enforcement, that was a new thing in America. Now we're used to Columbine, and Vegas, and Sandy Hook. In those days, that was a big deal. So we went in with no perimeter the next day. We had Bradley fighting vehicles, and I think I wrote about the book as I look back at it now. And even though we we're on HRT and we had a military uh, character, I'd never done a full frontal D-Day assault on anything. And we think we're going at those guys from the front door of a Bradley. The hatch is going to come down and we're going into a full fucking assault. That's what we thought. When I was in that Bradley, that's what I thought was going to happen. And we got out, found out that they had not set up in these tunnels that we believed they had, that they were still in the building. So that didn't go down. And we just essentially set up Sierra 1, Sierra 2, hunkered down and gathered intel for a long period of time.
0: Did... Was there a sense, like what was the perspective from the FBI's point of view, specifically HRT, on the hostage situation? Because that's, like when I think about all of me and Kevin's time doing hostage rescue and understanding crisis points and crisis contingencies, I immediately assess, even in the worst case scenario, like a Yeva jihadist and he has a family of kids, those are non-combatants, those are hostages. Um, you know, everybody else is a crow until you determine who they, who, who they are. Um, or parrot. I might have messed that up. I don't, know. I don't remember the bird verbiage anymore. But I, I'm thinking hostages, right? Yeah. And so were you guys thinking this is a whole bunch of bad guys because they just showed their propensity to kill and uh, uh, with automatic weapons? Were those kids considered the hostages in the, in the circumstance?
1: Yes. But I, I think as I recall now, and I'm probably misspeaking now, but as I recall, my mindset was not a hostage rescue, but a bad guy, stop. You know, that, that we knew they had shooters. We knew they had killed federal agents. We knew the intel on the weaponry they had, the vast amounts of ammunition, uh, which I'll talk about in a second, about how much they shot. And, uh, and that, that they did have children. So I think the, the, the underlying logic was the kids were the hostages. Some of the women were hostages, and there were lots of them. And listen, I I don't care what your position is on Waco. It's very difficult to argue the fact that you could have men with automatic weapons and grenades in a stronghold shooting federal agents, but you're a good guy to your kids. Right? I mean, somebody might be able to make that argument. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. If you have machine guns illegally and you're going to shoot federal agents, I'm thinking you might be a risk to the members of your family whether you're a religious cult or, or or not. So my thinking at the time was uh, they're wounded. We knew David Koresh was wounded. We knew that they had a limited fighting capability because of their casualties. And we're thinking we're going to go in the building, we're going to shut them down and save all the women and children. That was the thinking.
0: Was there a literal debate that you knew that took place between the tactical element you guys and then the political elements that were dictating your actions.
1: Yeah, 100%. And what you got to understand about the FBI at the time is the FBI had two primary aspects at Quantico, Virginia for crisis resolution. One was the negotiators who, ta- who wanted to talk them out peacefully, right? That's a law enforcement component not unique to the FBI. Police departments all over the country did it. At that time, especially after Ruby Ridge, the idea was just put a fence around it and talk them out. And David Koresh, whatever you think about him, I, I think of him as, as Vernon Howell, this just goofball from West from Texas, who, when you, I sat and listened to this guy for hour after day, after week, after month, and he was just uh, uh, an aw shucks con man. I mean, he was, I'm not making value judgments about him because I don't want to jade what I'm saying to people trying to weigh their opinion on Waco. But David Koresh is not this, is not Taylor Kitsch, this bright, Good-looking actor in a Netflix special David Koresh was just a two-bit goof and We knew that because we could hear the negotiators on a a private comms system, right? But the ultimate what I'm trying to say is that the negotiators at that time got the whole gig and we were considered knuckle-draggers Who were a danger? It's like a sharp knife that you don't want lying around on the corner. You want to keep that sharp knife in a drawer If you need that knife, you're gonna pull it out. But we were the sharp knife and considered thugs, I suppose, to a certain extent. And the FBI, after Ruby Ridge, the federal government writ large did not want another violent resolution. They'd already had a shootout. It's on national television. The easy thing to do is sit back, negotiate this thing to an end and call it a day. So we knew that once after day two, I knew we were gonna be on babysitting patrol for quite a long time and that's what happened. But the FBI, Bill Clinton, Janet Reno, the Justice Department wanted to talk this out and end it peacefully. And, and, and great, you know, if it had worked that way, everybody would have been happy. happy. And, and I, knew the, I knew all the negotiators too. So it was, a, it was an ideological difference of opinion in how to resolve that. I think if we'd gone in the first night, we would have saved all the women and children. Uh, I, of course I might be wrong. That's not what happened. What happened is the negotiators got it. They did not talk this out peacefully. And 80 something people burned up in that fire
0: at the um, you know, it's just we're seven weeks into this and it turns out that there's going to be uh, a tactical operation, which you said in the book, you had known in advance that this was the decision that was made. And I think that decision um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it was to contain the objective. Use the Bradleys to provide protection for the assault element and then infiltrate CS gas to smoke out, uh, the, I'm assuming, the non-combatants, So the hostages, um, because there was an idea that if you pumped in the CS, they would break contact from the building, which would allow you to get clear vantage points in uh, engaging the enemy because obviously they would be shooting at you and you had the protection of the hold vehicles, the armored vehicles to be able to conduct a, I'm assuming, get the tactical advantage and fire superiority. And then uh, obviously in preparation for an assault, if you had to assault.
1: Precisely. Unfortunately, that's not, 20 years ago, nobody had that perspective. Now we take it for granted. Back in those days, we were making this shit up as we went along. And And we, I mean, the president of the United States, right? There were political consequences for how this thing played out. Uh, You may remember the pictures on, well, you guys wouldn't remember, but I remember watching TV and they had SOS or help signs painted on bedsheets hanging out the windows. At the same time, their buddies are pointing fifty calibers uh, right at my head. I mean, I'm looking down the scope and the barrel of a fucking Barrett muzzle brake.
0: In Urban Hides. In Urban urban
1: Hides. I mean, these guys were as good as we were, right? So this was a daily standoff with guys. They'd give us the finger and... uh, that uh, uh, what am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say it was an open adversarial interaction between us and them. We're trying to be professionals. We were professionals, not trying. We were professionals. We'd sit there and watch. We'd document. And, uh, you know, if you have two, if you're, if you're looking at an adversarial relationship at a target and you know they have 250s, they had tons and tons of weapons because of, of the shootout with the ATF. But at that point, at 200 yards behind sandbags, I didn't give a shit about a 308 or a 300 Win Mag or anything else. But a 50, because I had a 50, so I knew what my 50 would do. And I didn't want theirs coming at me because I knew what it was going to do to me. So you do this day after day after day. You get to know them. You provide intel. You do, uh, you do uh, um, their, all, all their schedules. You know their faces. Uh, it's, it's a very personal thing after a while. But, yes, yeah, so we knew if it went down, this is the way it was going to do it. Because we wrote the plan, right? We wrote the tactical plan. But here's what happened. The negotiation tactics, and I, be, I went to a negotiator, I became a negotiator after the fact, so I know the, the tactics. And the tactics are you build rapport, you wear them down, you buy time, you de-escalate, you get them bored, you present solutions, and you make surrender the obvious choice. David Koresh was smart enough that he figured that out. So he would say, you'd come to work one day and you go, yeah, they're coming out and you'd hear the negotiators talk to him you're the best david save the kids you're a great guy which they have to do but it still sounds like shit right and then david Kresh would say i've just got to finish these seven seals and i'm going to talk to god and oh you know what i went to bake a cake last night god came to me and he said i'm not coming out today and you go and the negotiator would get all wound up and we'd say you stupid bastard what do you think he's going to do he's a used car salesman he's a he was a charlatan so this went on day after day, after week, after month. And after a while, you just feel like a stooge because we were a high, one of the most highly trained, rapid action, excisers of violence that, that existed anywhere. And this is not what we were supposed to be doing. We're not a babysitter duty. So what happens is the human behavior becomes this become more and more antagonistic. So we started playing the loud music that you guys have had at Sears school. So we'd play like doors shutting at 120 decibels. We had these big walls of speakers. We'd play rabbits being killed at doors slamming. I mean, uh, Latin speaking back, I don't even remember. It was worse on our side because we were right next to the speakers all night, but they're playing them for them, but it, it sucked, right? You leave the lights on all night, trying to disrupt sleep cycles, all these tactics, nothing worked. So we started doing things like we had little birds and. 412s, and we would fly at the building like we were attacking at ground level, five feet off the deck, and then spin up. We'd do anything uh, just to be, it became more and more and more volatile and antagonistic as time went on um, because we were all just done with it. We said, fuck it. Either put a fence around it and call it a Federal Correctional Institute, Waco, and bring them food and we'll just go home, or let's get it on. And I don't mean to be flipping about it because people died, but that's really it. So anybody in that situation can imagine sitting in a wall behind a wall and staring at something for two months and thinking something's going to change. It just became ridiculous that adults couldn't resolve something as simple as this and it got worse and worse. So one day, and we never knew what it was. One day we got called in, we were working 24 hour shifts. So you're on site 24 off site 24 and they said, come in at four o'clock in the morning and we knew it was going down. So we went in, they gave us the ops plan on site five o'clock in the morning, And I forget what time we hit, but it was early, something like six. And the idea was that we had these, for all intents and purposes, tanks. But on the turrets, they had the tear gas. We used CS, uh, which to most people that don't know, you have various categories of chemical irritants and CS is military grade and it sucks, right? And it was squirting it from these two tanks. And I knew the guy, I mean, these are your buddies, right? There's only 50 of us and we're driving the tanks. So we had assault teams in the tanks punctured the buildings with the turrets, injected the gas, and the guys are inside the fucking building, right? This is not like I'm watching it from 200 yards away. These guys are inside the building looking through the viewfinder of of an armored vehicle, a tank, and could see what's going on. And it comes over the radio that the guys inside... Well, first of all, I should say, the first thing they did is just open up on us and hose us with bullets for hours. They shot so many rounds... David Koresh and his guys shot so many rounds that they had to take the, the, the expended shell casings out with a, with a front-end loader. I mean, can you imagine? You're not talking hundreds of rounds. You're talking about tons of expended shell casings. And nobody ever talks about that. Nobody ever talks about that. Were they shooting
0: at the Bradleys or both, both you both. and the Syria. Yeah, cereal so I,
1: I walked outside right after the fire started, which was a few minutes later. It was later in the morning. I walked outside next to this guy, uh, another guy on the team who's gone on to the another a- entity that you and I know about another agency And uh, he and I was were behind we had a 60 set up Behind sandbags because we thought they were coming at us with an assault, right? We figured they were going to storm us so we had uh, we had crew served and we had uh, Barrett's and we had we were we were ready to go because they were shooting the living shit out of us. So we were standing behind a sandbag wall, behind a, uh, behind a 60, stood up, and uh, anybody who's ever dealt with, uh, with supersonic, with any, any long gun, knows what, what it feels like when a bullet goes by your head, right? It's that snap, you get that supersonic hit, and it went right between our heads. So I could, feel, I could feel the bullet wash going by my head. Um, so I almost got shot there, and everybody else did too. So they shot the shit out of us, and we eventually tore the buildings down. The guys in the tanks are several feet away from the guys inside pouring gasoline all over the building, and they wire out that they're spreading gas. Somebody touched it off. Uh, they started shooting at each other. You could, you could hear them shooting each other, which was different than them shooting at us.
0: The rhythm, And the rhythm and cadence. Yes, so exactly right, right. yep. And that was, that's, been a, that's been correlated to autopsy reports on...
1: Autopsy reports, uh, you know, I, I was in the ashes minutes after it settled down a little bit. And there were skulls everywhere with, bullet, with entry and exit holes in the head, you know, small in the front. They just held just, guns to their heads and shot them. Just the
0: adults or kids and adults? I didn't
1: see any kids' skulls. I saw plenty of adult skulls. I have photographs of adult skulls with, with the bullet holes in them. So they shot each other in the head. Themselves in the head, they lit the fire, and the place started to burn. There's a 40 mile an hour wind going. I think it was right to left, uh, and the flames are going left to right against a 40 mile an hour wind. So people that say uh, the fan, the wind was blowing the fire, the fire was going in the opposite direction. Uh, Everybody saw it. Uh, Not everybody. Many of the HRT operators saw Caressius people lighting the fire. Uh, it, the evidence is overwhelming and unequivocal and through all of the investigations has never been repudiated in any way about what happened there. There's only two things that, uh, that, that ever came up. Somebody did a FLIR. This thing was all recorded. Everything was intimately recorded. And there was FLIR footage that showed glint uh, outside the building that looked like it might have been muzzle flash in the dirt. It looked like we crawled in, dug viper pits, And we were shooting from very close to the building, 20, 30 feet away from the building. Um, So this video became a big thing. It was a documentary, led to a big investigation and it was proven that it was just water or broken bottles. It was something on the ground that reflected light on FLIR. So anybody that's ever seen FLIR footage knows what glint looks like. And they're they're showing these things, all these conspiracy theories are showing this thing. And you see this glint, which would be gunfire under their theory. And you see a tank rolling over the glint, right? Mm -hmm. So if we had a guy in the ground shooting into the building, he just got ran over by a fucking Bradley Mm -hmm. or a a tank, right? M1, whatever the tank was. So all of that fell out. Uh, It was disproven, uh, but that doesn't matter to conspiracy theories. Evidence never matters. The other one is this. We did at one point use projectable M40 projectable tear gas rounds, which have an incendiary propellant, not the gas itself is not flammable, but the propellant is, right? You guys probably have seen
0: those things. From an M79?
1: I'm, I'm sorry, M79, yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. So we were shooting uh, MC9 projectable gas canisters into the building, and at some point somebody determined one of those was incendiary, and uh, or pyrotechnic they called it, and that started a fire, but that was disproven as well. Mm. There's no question that once we started the assault, for better or worse, we didn't make that decision, but that's what we did. Once the fire started uh, and the shooting died down, that was it. But uh, I've got to say outright that the Netflix documentary about Waco, Texas was so absurdly inaccurate and full of outright lies and, and just, just lazy, stupid things that are, that are wrong that it's difficult even to talk about it. And <clears throat> I don't get angry about it because it's Hollywood. But I do feel badly about it because during the coronavirus, three quarters of the country watched the goddamn thing. And it's just absurd uh, how inaccurate and how jaded and how wrong it was. And I feel badly that history ends up being represented in something that goofy. I mean, it was absolutely stupid.
0: Yeah, you almost get the impression from the the Netflix um, show, which I watched, was that you know, obviously, it's biased towards the, the Davidians. Negotiator. The Yeah, and the, and the negotiator and the trying Davidians. to save save the day. And they were just normal, good people. Yeah. Like, they never showed, obviously, a, a, a guy in a 50-cow in an urban hide pointing his 50-cow weapon system 200 yards away from a FBI agents. Um, and there's there's controversy about the fire. And, and I hear that the most, right? People were like, they, they knew it set fires. And even at the end, I think, of that show... They highlight different reports of saying that the incendiary, uh, whether it's the two or three or forty mic mic version of that CS grenade was flammable and that it had started all these fires before. But you said that people that it was reported over the radio. Like there was there was people reporting it. I mean the HRT agents over
1: our tactical comms yeah. network i don't know if that was out on any i'm sure it was secure so.
0: yeah so oh. i mean that they saw the guys pouring the gas correct and then lighting the fires and with, handing uh, out gas masks and handing out gas masks and shooting at each other in the head when 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 you guys did uh, did you guys do SSE as a as a tactical element or was no. it an investigation locked down uh
1: we we didn't uh uh we didn't do anything except watch yeah, HRT. We provided the, the perimeter and provided intel from watching, but we had nothing to do with anything else.
0: When, when uh, I, I want to get your feeling because when I see the video, the real life video, even when I hear you talk about it uh, in the audible version of your book, um, knowing that all those kids died, like I don't like we you know going to war. I have no problem with shooting a man, a middle aged male, in his face, like. It, me and kevin have been in circumstances where we've taken younger people's lives because of their choices but when i see innocent people dying in any form or function especially at waco it bothers me it's like really hard to fathom especially imagining that you watched that for seven weeks right we there in every book john plaster's uh, the ultimate sniper is a great example of this. Uh, So is Carlos Hatchcock's uh, One Shot, One Kill, about the intimacy that you build in day in and day out, observing and learning people's patterns of life and becoming more familiar with them as people. There's that human connection. And you're watching a physical building burn to the ground knowing that no kids have broken contact like it was expected they would. No hostages have been released for the exception of a few. And after it's all said and done there's 30 plus children that are killed in that in that fire did you have a sense of the gravity of that on site after the fact or ever
1: i don't know i don't that's i i don't know the answer to that um which Maybe that's the answer. I'll say this. You do build that intimacy, and we did know about all the kids, and we did know the consequences of that fire, but you also build over time a sense of blame that we begged, conjured, cajoled, promised, pleaded, threatened, Everything a humanly imaginable to try to get those people out of that building and People would call them different things. I would call them a cult. I think you have a charismatic leader with an underlying foundation of, of Broken people who needed to belong to something greater that would have done anything that David Koresh asked them to do Whether that be give them all their physical possessions which they did or allow them to abuse their children which they did allow him to have sex with all of the women in there which they did they, you can look at every aberrant behavioral issue at Mount Carmel the entire time we were there and rub that aside, but not really. If you're intimate with the people in there and you know what they're doing and you're a good human being, you have to look at David Koresh and say, who thinks it's fine to do all of those things to another human being? And they could not possibly have left that building without his say-so or without his, with his plotting. So my personal belief was anger, animosity, and disgust with David Koresh as a human being because he could easily have said, leave children, because some children left early on. He could have let those kids leave. He could have let the women leave. He could have let the men leave that didn't want to fight, but he didn't, he kept them there. And, And I'll say this, and I think this is very important. I went back to Waco some years after not a long time, several years afterwards, maybe the fifth year anniversary. Um, it was with, with a CBS news crew. I was a friends with this woman Maureen Maher and we went back to look at Waco revisit at five years or whatever the case was <clears throat> and I uh, went through the whole thing. And I, and I said, listen, in that broadcast, and I'll say it again, this guy on the team, this guy, uh, I don't know if this name's public, but Scarhead, we call him Scarhead is his nickname. Um, who was a, a remarkable human being he could have made it in any special operations team that ever existed on a planet Great great guy and a true American hero this guy And this is not on a Netflix documentary He was in one of the armored vehicles after the fire started and they weren't coming out of the building We're just getting hosed with automatic weapons fire. He got out of his armored vehicle and he ran into the building which was completely on fire I've got photographs of it to prove it he ran into the building on fire breached the front of it and a woman was coming out of somewhere in the building and she came out saw him he grabbed her and he's screaming at her where are the kids where are the kids and he's in the fucking burning building he's in Mount Carmel with this woman she looked at him uh, with this blank look on her face would not tell him where the women were broke away and ran back into the fire and, and died And I use that as an example for people that have all these conspiracy theories and say how does a woman a mother of these children? Look at the guy that's coming in there trying to get the children save the children Which was our primary responsibility and our primary mission there at that point and and explain that They knew what they were doing. They made a commitment. And as adults, they have to be held accountable for that. The children suffered as a result of those decisions. So you can blame Janet Reno, you can blame Bill Clinton, you can blame the director of the FBI, you can blame me. You can blame me personally. You can do anything you want. But at some point, you've got to look at the person that started this whole thing and fix some kind of responsibility to what transpired because of his actions. All those people died all those federal agents died or were shot and we and I almost died None of that really matters to to the public. They just want to come up with a conspiracy that we went in Maligned this poor prophet named David Koresh and and killed all those kids. My opinion is different Uh, David Koresh killed those kids and I'll say this and I think this is very important I've been back to Waco four times in the 20 years since that happened and I've gotten to be or I was for a time what I would consider friends with the pastor that came in to take over after David Koresh died And if you go back you can look that David Koresh had a piss-and-match with a former competitor as pastor of Mount Carmel A spiritual leader of Mount Carmel and they had an armed altercation That guy ended up taking over they rebuilt a church and I've been back four times and I've talked to him several times I even played in the band There at Mount Carmel with these guys. I sat and talked to people that were in there I saw it and talked to people that survived the fire, that went to jail and got out. I've talked to all of them personally, like you and I are talking right now. The pastor looked at me and he goes, Chris, you didn't call me Whit, he called me Chris. He said, Chris, I got to tell you something. Uh, you can't feel responsible for this. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, David Koresh told me, told him, the, the new pastor, that this was going to happen. He prophesied it. He said, I am going to die at Mount Carmel at the hands of the federal government this is my vision, this is going to happen, and it did. And this, the new pastor, who may still be there, I don't know, he said, there is nothing you could have done but fulfill David Koresh's prophecy. So I'm not shirking responsibility, I'm not saying it was predetermined, I'm not saying anything other than the fact that David Koresh could not have lived as a nobody in prison. He had to be David Koresh, not Vernon Howell, but the savior of Mount Carmel, the second coming of Jesus, all those things that he prophesied with the seven seals and everything else. So uh, that's just my opinion. It's not the opinion of the FBI or the hostage rescue team or anybody else. It's just my opinion. But I've worked a long time trying to figure out what happened there. And I look at it and say, David Koresh committed acts that led to the death of 80 something people. And we tried to help and couldn't.
0: The, um i think about a lot of things tactically like you do right we, yeah. we 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 look at tactics because we're tacticians we study that we've trained it we've lived it when i when i when i see this this tactic of driving the up armor vehicles and having everybody buttoned up which is drawing fire yes um and then i look at your capability yeah. which is the most elite counterterrorism unit in in the world for what you guys do which is precision surgical hostage rescue on the, on the X. Correct. And I wonder why you guys didn't hit it at night. Because look, like, like me and Kevin talked about it, these guys are dummies, right? Dummies. They had AKs. They're pointing them at thresholds. They're pointing them at windows. They're shooting. But they're not skilled tacticians. And you know, when we look, even look at the adversaries that we fought, Mahdi militia, Al-Qaeda, ISIS – they're never anything they brief. There's our Zarkawi in the desert fumble-fucking-saw. Yeah. And so when I see that objective set, and if you, if you told me the best way to skin it, I would say, you know, obviously this is hindsight, but I think it's important just to line, line out. I see multiple breach points. I see a, a nighttime raid. I see killing a whole bunch of bad guys, and I see saving a whole bunch of kids. And I I've always wondered why that tactic was leverage as the answer or solution.
1: I agree with every word out of your mouth. That was my exact same perspective, and I believe the same perspective of everybody on the team. That's what we were designed to do. Uh, we had the same call you guys did, speed, surprise, and violence of action. Hit them at 4 o'clock in the morning, do exactly what we do as well as anybody ever. Kill the bad guys, save the good guys, call it a day. That is not what happens with politicians. There, is, there was a... At that point, the stakes were so high throughout America, and that's what gets lost in translation, that America was obsessed with this every single day in a news cycle. And at that point, no politician was willing to say, let's put the pit bull on the, on the bait. You know, It just was not a viable alternative, nor would it have been for us. If we'd done exactly what you just suggest within the first 48 hours, Yay. But by the time they'd reloaded, they had healed, they had fortified, they had strategized, they'd put everything together. Uh, a lot of these guys died with, with uh, mag carriers. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were fully outfitted, kitted, and ready to go. And, and that's not
0: an assumption. You guys heard that intel because no, we you listened.
1: Dad, I got yeah. photographs of them. I, I, I don't have them on me, but I could show you what that place looked like. The weapons, I mean, the, the, the number of weapons and the sheer volume of expended rounds in that place was staggering. It was unbelievable what they had, All, and they used them. So, yes, we were a tactical resolution component of the federal government, used as babysitters, and misused by politicians in an, in an exercise that went terribly wrong. So, you know, you go back to Waco today, and it's just a big, beautiful field full of horses and cows, and the wind's blowing across the field and I can show you where the bus was, where they found the kids and the body parts. I can show you where the skulls were and the thigh bones and the, all the barbecued meat and everything else. I can show you all those things, but now it's just a little church with a bunch of people that went back to what they call a religion and the wind blowing through Texas. And you go, how did that happen and where is it? Well, it happened and it's gone, but it's like war. You, know, you can't explain where it comes from or where it goes, uh, but it does. It comes and goes.
0: After, um, after this happened, you explained in the book that you went back and you went home, and you held your two children's hands. At the time, they were both boys, I believe. Yeah, b- both of your sons, Jake and Mick. Jake and Mick. Did was there a was there an, a sense of? trying to cope with that while you went back to work and, and while all this investigation and I think you even said in maybe 94 or 93, like you guys couldn't do anything because of all the things that were going on politically, they had just basically shut you guys down. Correct. Um, domestically. And then you had to manage this mid career pinnacle of HRT. Um, how did you come to terms with that in your own way, in your own personal life?
1: Well, I'll say it again. It was a very, very different time, and I'll, I'll, I'll start out by saying this. First year, first three years, almost three years that I was on HRT, and, and we'll say again, we were, uh, you know, we were not a SWAT team, we were a hostage rescue team. Extreme violence, extremely high probability of injury. First t- three years I was on that team, we never had, in training, an immediate action drill for a man going down. You go in a door breach, You Take the first three guys take two to the can and go down. There was nobody touched them We would go to the objective accomplish the mission and go back and deal with the dead and wounded afterward There was no thought of something bad happening. That just it was a crazy mindset I mean who would think of that now, right? You go into combat and if you get hit you're down Forget about you, right? It's a different mindset by the same token. There was no mechanism for any kind of psychological issue as a result of that. You're a tough guy. You get all the clearances in the world, top secret, Q, whatever, majestic, any kind of fucking clearance, right? Um, and if you ever said, hey, I got a headache or you know, what happened at Waco, you lose, all, you lose everything. You lose your identity. You lose your job. You lose your, uh, everything goes away. So there was no mechanism for anybody to deal with the aftermath of anything if it bothered them. So you go back to your kids and the wife says, hey, I got new curtains. What do you think of the couch? Uh, We got to get a new car. The spark plugs need changing on the lawnmower. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, I just spent seven weeks in this shithole and we just killed 88 people, whatever the case was, and life goes on. So there's that disconnect that anybody that served in combat knows. It doesn't have to be, there's no such thing as a traditional firefight anyway, right? Could you guys look at your life and say that was a typical firefight? They're they're all different. They're all different and, and all mine were different. So I went back after not seeing my family for two months. And the first thing I remember is that my kids were very young. They might've been in, I don't know, like second or third grade or fourth grade, something like that. And uh, so I had to go in for a teacher parent conference or something. And I went in and the teacher was all wound up because um, the kids were doing some exercise in class. And one of my kids drew this picture of a building on fire and all these people lying around with bullets flying in them and stuff like that. And they, and they said uh, that my kids had watched it on TV and it was fucking up their psychology or whatever else. And I go, well, you should have fucking been at Waco, you know. So there, there was a fallout. But my point is the FBI, the U.S. government, the hostage rescue team, American society, American culture at that time had no mechanism for dealing with any kind of psychological issues. So if something happened, well, who cares? You're a tough guy. You're supposed to be able to handle it, right? Some guys handled it well and some didn't. I think my problem with Waco coming back was that I just had to go back to regular day-to-day life, and that's hard, man. Every deployment you come back from, I'm guessing, you go through the same thing, right? You come back, and you go, wait a minute. I'm not living in a Conex box on a fucking cot, eating MREs for three months and trying to keep desert sand out from my ball sack. You know, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's what it's And you go back to the real world, and you go, man, I got to live in society. So I jumped on my Harley with some friends, and I rode away. You know, that's the way I dealt with it. Um, but it is, it's funny. I talked about the book about this, but it's important for people to understand the mindset. We, the F, the hostage rescue team were at Quantico, right? So we use the facility like the chow hall, the gym, we use those facilities and the FBI Academy at the time was DEA agents, FBI agents, and cops at the national Academy. It's, it looks like a community college. It's a campus. So HRT shares that space. So, uh, people started complaining that all these psycho fucking lunatics, meaning me were a problem, like the way we were treating people, whatever at Quantico. So it made it up to headquarters. Headquarters decided that we needed some kind of intervention. So they sent down what I called a psychiatric SWAT team and they came down and they had all these interactive things trying to get us to open up about our problems, some kind of counseling. Nobody knew what to do. Nobody had invented this term resilience. Nobody knew what PTSD was, but I don't think anybody was fucked up anyway, but it had this, this funny thing that the first thing they did is they brought in this doctor and he said, what you guys really need to do is jerk off more while you're on the road. That was the FBI psychiatrist's prognosis for what we should do to save the hostage rescue team. And one guy looks at him and he goes, I do that anymore and I'm not going to have any skin left on my, you know, I mean, it, it was the most absurd thing that you could ever imagine that really happened. This, this guy really said you need to jerk off more on the road and, uh, So that was the first thing. Then they brought in everybody together into a a classroom at the FBI Academy. And they brought in the head of the psychiatric SWAT team after this process. And he said, look, I'm going up there, professional responsibility mandates that I tell you what I am going to say about you to headquarters. And he said, I'm going to recommend X, Y, and Z because you have uh, whatever, emotion transfer, as you talked about earlier, Mike, to rage. He said, you only have one emotion and that emotion is rage, at which point, now this is 50 shooters wearing these polo shirts, white polo shirts with a, like a semi-uniform type thing, and they're all sitting there looking at this pedantic little Harvard psychiatrist, not that there's anything wrong with that, and uh, they're looking down at this guy, these 50 fucking rabid meat eaters, and they look down at him, and this guy stands up at the back of the room, and he goes, rage, rage, I'll show you rage, you motherfucker. And he starts running down the tabletops, down this amphitheater at this psychiatrist whose eyes get this big. And the other guys on the team see him running down. I mean, he's literally running down the tables between guys in this rabid assault on the psychiatrist to attack the psychiatrist. A bunch of guys jump up, grab him, and a big fist fight breaks out. And, and the, guy, the, psychi- the psychiatric SWAT team ran away and they never came back. And they never issued a report, and nothing happened, and we went to fucking Yemen. <laughs> right? So that's what the world was like in those days. Yeah, man. you're on your own, dog. That's they, crazy. They had, you know, you talk about the secretive world. I remember that nobody dared. You know, we were uh, like a, a CIA hit entity, renditions, and all this secret shit that nobody in the FBI dared to know anything about. So they used to do inspections. They still do inspections at offices where they come in, make sure you get enough paper clips and make sure that you're, you know, whatever, some bureaucratic bullshit. But nobody had ever done one at, the, at HRT because nobody wanted to know what we did, right? Because if you knew what we did and you're a bureaucrat, you're probably fuck career-wise. Yeah. So somebody at some point said, well, we gotta figure out what's going on. So they came down and they did an audit and they accused us of losing like 250 guns and all the shit that, you know, disappears operationally, right? Half of it was at the bottom of the ocean because we fell out of a helicopter. Mm-hmm. But they came down and they accused us of losing or stealing and selling, a, uh, I think it was a 412, a helicopter. So the point was that while we were doing all this shit in those years, nobody, not nobody, very few people knew or cared what we were doing. It was just, a, it was a very different world. And, you know, like when, you're, when you started in the early days of, the, of that community, Six and, and Delta, in the early days, going into that world was the end of your career. You were never going to get promoted. There was no command structure of, of uh, moving up the ranks when you went into that world. And it was the same with our team. If you went on this team, you were never going to get promoted in the FBI because you could never talk about what you did. So I think what I'm saying in this ramble is that those days were very different than what you see now when you, when you see the guy with the beard and the tattoos coming out of Afghanistan, it was a different world. Shit was really secret and shit was really new and creative. And we made that stuff up as we went along. There were were so few understandings about tactics and, uh, you know, I, I mean, even something as simple as. Is uh, we worked the early guys on the team worked with Nike to make assault boots that you could spin and work and whatever, and they ended up becoming their basketball shoes. The tread patterns became their basketball shoes. Wow. So even in terms of the soles of the shoes that we were wearing, we even made that shit up. So they were fascinating times. But you guys have carried on and made this something bigger and better and more remarkable. You're the most elite, elite fighting force the world's ever conjured, and I'm looking back at Sparta. I'm looking at Genghis Khan. I'm looking at some hard pipe hitters, right? And, and, and it's remarkable for an old guy like me to look at what you're doing now and see that's where it's gone. But in those days, it was primitive. You know, I was talking to Kevin that we'd run those MP5 9mm with the flashlights on the front, and the flashlights were bigger than the fucking MP5, right? We shot wheel guns. We started out with 357 Magnum wheel guns. Um, I remember the first time I saw an MP5 SD. I just couldn't believe he could suppress it and what it was like. So what I'm saying is the history is important, in my opinion, to understand the tactics, the weapons, the mentality, why teams were made, how they were made, uh, the mistakes along the way. Ruby Ridge, Waco, how that changed law enforcement, how things grow. It's like a baby. You know, you got to get a couple sniffles before you can grow an immune system. And that heritage, in my opinion, just because I'm one of those guys, I'm one of the old guys, that heritage is important. And when you bring new guys up in the Army, or the Navy, the Air Force, or the Marines, I don't want to overlook any armed uh, armed forces, even the Coast Guard, you've got to look and say, what we take for granted now in terms of expertise came on the backs of a lot of hit and miss. And and in my opinion, it's important to recognize that heritage.
0: Yeah, 100%. And um, I, thought, I thought about the evolution of uh, Waco and what it did for tactics, what it did for I mean, there was a lot of lessons learned, obviously. Yeah, very um, much, yeah. Especially when it came to political influence on tactical objectives and lines of communication and delineation and even the dissemination of tactical plans. Um, I'm curious, in your book, though, you never mentioned Oklahoma City. and And when I thought, when I immediately, uh, me and Kev pinged on it because I'm like, you know, Oklahoma City obviously was a terrorist attack. There's no doubt about that. A domestic terrorist attack. And he, Timothy McVeigh goes out and talks in death or in depth in his manifesto and his own discussions and arguments about um his retaliation against government. And and almost like really closes the loop for a lot of people in their decision making for for being anti-government, right? Because they're like You know, this is the way I think. And then somebody comes out with a manifesto. Somebody does a a hit on a federal bomb uh, that kills a lot of people, including a childcare full of uh, children. And he justifies it by saying, I'm getting back at the government for what they did. And a lot of people rose up and were like, exactly. This is the vindication we were looking for. Where were you at during that time and what effect on the unit or the FBI or yourself did it have? Burnley stated, I was overseas, I had very little to do with
1: it at all, uh, watched it on the news, and that was pretty much my exposure. And you know, guys, when in this world, things are compartmented, right? You may be on an op and not have any exposure to news for lengthy periods of time because you're focused on your own gig, or you're just out of comms, right, Ocon- OCONUS or whatever else, and I was, so I really don't have much perspective on Oklahoma City, uh, except for what the average person would have watching it on the news. But uh, I look at things, I I think of myself, uh, I think of both of us, Mike, you and I, the conversations that we have, we're intellectuals in the sense that we are very curious and we look at many, many different aspects of things. It's not as simple as just tactics or training of those things. We look at humanity. We look at all those things. And I think when it comes right down to it, As horrible as it sounds i think there's just a lot of assholes out there Mm. and timothy mcveigh gets on the news and he says he was doing this and he was doing that that's not true he was an asshole Mm -hmm. who killed people and society has to have a mechanism for dealing with selfish spineless delusional misguided pricks that do stuff like that so I, i can't really offer any comment about Timothy McVeigh and the people like Timothy McVeigh. And there's a lot of them, you know, Columbine, Sandy Hook and so, so many different things, Aurora, Colorado. There are so many of those people now who do nothing in life but cause misery and angst and anguish. They never do anything uh, that they contribute to society. They're not, they're, I, I, I just, I don't look at them anything else as dead.
0: Mm. You 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 left HRT and you, you work for the crisis incident response group
1: Yeah, HRT. So the, the good thing that came out of Ruby Ridge and Waco was the FBI on behalf of the federal government put together They said look we got all these assets. We got negotiators. We got uh, Behavioral analysts the the profilers. We've got all these people. Let's bring them together. Let's put them in one entity Let's cross-train them and let's have all the resolution. So you roll up on a on a Waco You've got the negotiators. You've got the profilers telling you what to say to the bad guys. You've got the the logistics mechanism that's doing all the gathering information, all the my, the data mining capabilities we have as we're making. You get every single possible thing that you can bring to bear on a peaceful resolution of a of a situation. And if that goes bad, you've got the the guys to come in and kill the bad guys, HRT. Put them all in this group. They call it the Critical Incident Response Group. And I think it was the single greatest step forward in terms of uh, crisis resolution that's happened in the in the last hundred years
0: there's something that that's fascinating to me because i've always looked very much the same way in certain instances even how i look at like the protests and the violence and 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 the ways we handle circumstances because you know if you have a tactical background and you're a ranger you you breach doors you blow shit up speed surprise violence of action but there's many variables that, including human behavior, that dictate what you should do, and it's not always necessary to bring down the sledgehammer. And one of the things you talked about yes. was the operation in, in uh, I believe, Puerto Rico. Yeah. And it was a, a protest, and a peaceful protest at that, where you gave the recommendation to uh, change and adapt and, and not do things as SOP. Because if it was SOP, we come in bringing the sledgehammer. Because the military wanted to bring military marines and all kinds of SWAT guys and guys in battle gear. And it would create, number one, probably the wrong action on the objective, but the wrong perception via the media. Because the media was why this existed. And, and uh, I, I want you to talk about that, but th- the thing that stands out to me the most is... You talked about this man who was one of the protesters and everybody was basically given the option to be flex cuffed or not. And they were so loosely around their arms, they had to hold their arms up to keep the flex cuffs on them like they were detained. Because that's what they wanted to do in the first place is show their position to the world. And then you had the dude the older guy who rolled around like a sugar cookie and then realized <laughs> nobody was paying attention. And, it, and it's analogous to in a way to what's going on now in a way where you have a media war and campaign um, influencing an agenda. Um, whether or not you believe in that agenda, there's many incentives and agendas. Um, and when nobody's paying attention, nobody really fucking cares. And you got an institution – that has one way of attacking a problem set to change and adapt its methodology. Talk to me about that. Like how One, how did you get that uh, through to the higher levels of command? And what do you think? Where did that come from? Well, you gotta, you got to look at the FBI. First, first of all, I'll say this unequivocally, and I feel this very
1: strongly. There's no such thing as the FBI. There's no such thing as the federal government or the army or Delta or SEAL Team 6. There's no such thing as an entity. These entities are human beings and rules. And sometimes human beings make bad rules and sometimes they get them wrong, right? So I would always say that when you're talking about the FBI, you're talking about me as a human being. And people would talk about 9-11 or they'd talk about Waco or Ruby Ridge or, or 50 other things. We, we just happen to be talking about those things today, but there's 50 others, right? And they would have all these conspiracy theories. And I'd say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're talking about the FBI, but I'm telling you, I'm that guy. I mean, literally me. I made the decision. I pulled the trigger, whatever else. And they go, what are you talking about? Yeah. And I'd say, I'm the fucking guy. Yeah. It's, there's no FBI. It's not
0: unicorn. It's not a, like an entity. It's not exactly. this Exactly. Fake- yeah. That,
1: but that's what people want to do. So whenever I have a conversation Somebody will invariably say well, they said this or they did that and I go who's they and they say, what do you mean? I go who is they give me I don't want a pronoun give me a name and they'll say oh, I read it on the internet I said you read what on the internet people that come up with these conspiracies never have a specific person mm-hmm. or a specific instance They have some ambiguous amorphous. They it's, right? it's a the generalization. It's generalization. Yeah. That's what human beings do so I look right now At The causes the riots the you know, what what we see as a culture right now. If you sat down those people Individually outside the hysteria take away the social media Take away the compulsion to be part of it Take away the compulsion for an actor to say I stand with this or I stand with that or a company that's scared of getting shut down Because they've been canceled due to their political beliefs if you take all that wet away and you sit down individual and you say what's really bothering you right now is it really about this Is it really about that they'll probably have a very different impression Mm -hmm. because there is a gang Mentality a hysteria that's as old as mankind Mm -hmm. this shit's been going on since we were fighting mastodons, right? You get a group of people together and they act differently than they would as individuals. Mm -hmm. You see it every I mean It's very predictable so we went to there's a protest for this place called Vieques island, which was a military training site off Puerto Rico uh, a couple of congressmen and their people went down there to have a protest and uh, the law abiding part of the US government said we gotta go in and arrest them all. I had put this kind of a psyops type of operation, an intelligence management aspect together for the, the critical incident response group so that we as a government, individuals who run the government, that we could make better decisions. So I went down there and I said, listen guys, you got the media lining up over here to make a story for the evening news because there was no it was a different cycle in those days. And you've got the protesters over here who don't exist unless they get on the evening news. So there's no news story at all unless we go in there and act like assholes and cuff these guys up. So why don't we just walk down there and say, hey guys, you gotta go. They'll say no, because they want to get on the evening news. The media wants a story. So he said, let's bring the media with us. Let's get these guys over and say, we'll handcuff you if you want, but we're not gonna cinch them down. So if you don't hold your hands up, they'll fall off. What happens? They hold their hands up, and everybody on TV can see that they're going to fall off. And it diffused everything. It went from being a confrontation that could have gotten ugly to being nothing. So the news media had no story. The protesters had no uh, voice. And the thing just fell apart like a popcorn fart, and everybody just wand- wandered off into the horizon. And it was a non event. So I look now at these things, and I say, I go back to, you know, th- there's a little bit of Atlas shrugged. Aspect of what we're going right now if we pull a John Galt and say, let's just say to Seattle and Minneapolis and any place else, okay, you don't want any police Let's just pull the police out for three days and see what happens And I think you're seeing that right now with what do they call it? Chad or something? Chaz. Chaz. They're calling it Chaz, Capitol Hill uh, Autonomous. Autonomous Zone, right? Uh, Not a great name in my opinion, but who gives a shit? Um, but I look at it now and say the fever has died down the frenzy has died down the bar fights over It's just a bunch of broken furniture and a bunch of hung, hungover people, right? And you look at chaz. It's graffiti. It's excrement in the streets. It's people who've lost all the passion They don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. They got to go back to their life They're sober up and go home, right? That's what happens in these riots if the federal government had just come out and said uh, Right after this happened these cops kill this guy or whatever the case may be and defuse the situation, it would be a different world. Right now in America today, we have an extraordinary amount of anger that is, is due to coronavirus shutdown, uh, economic, economic uh, depression, things that affect people in their daily lives. People are pissed, people are poor, people are hungry, people are disillusioned. People are saying, look at our political choices. And I'm, I'm apolitical, okay, I'll say that right now. I voted for Republicans and Democrats. I don't have a dog in that fight, but I am a fucking patriot and I am I've dedicated my life and almost given my life on numerous numerous occasions For law and order so that people don't have to deal with the shit that you and I have Mike people in society Shouldn't have to deal with the shit that you and I have dealt with in order to protect people, but we chose it It's all great. I'm you know, i have no regrets whatsoever but Right now in America We the American people need something better to look toward than Old white men running government. Mm -hmm. I believe that the politicians in this country are not going to solve this problem We have to solve this problem. We have to find a way to celebrate our strengths and Move forward to something that people can believe in and I promise no matter who wins the presidential race No matter who takes the Senate No matter who takes the House of Representatives, it's not going to be any different. Because politicians say and do what is in their own best interest. That, by definition, is what politicians do. And it's not going to change. America needs a charismatic voice to stand up and say, we are the greatest people uh, on earth as human beings. If we are, we've got to lead the way. We can't say it, we have to do it. So anyway, I don't mean to go on a rant. What I mean to say is that my experience with violence is I tried hard, but I could never kill all the bad guys Mm. because they don't think they're bad guys. They think I'm a bad guy. This buddy of mine, Pete Berg, a a movie director made this movie and at the end of the movie he had this brilliant line and he had uh, a a jihadist and he had an FBI agent, or it it was a good guy and a bad guy by our definition. In The last scene of the movie one of them whispers to his kid kill them all And then the other guy the bad guy whispers to his kid kill them all if human beings and you're a warrior One of the finest we've ever produced you've seen years of armed conflict Have you do you think we can kill enough people to solve all these problems?
0: No? I don't even think that's the solution near the solution. There's no way
1: There's no way we can't kill fight hate our way out of these situations. We need a meaningful plan forward and and bring good human beings together toward a solution Mm. and 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 i say that after spending 30 years in war and and conflict and secret this and secret that uh i i I think right now is a time is a is a pivotal time in american history i really firmly believe that
0: yeah i feel the same way
1: um thus endeth the rant sorry guys no
0: i like your rants (laughs) um they're super informative um, well, just, that kind of perspective is needed, right? I, I think a lot of people have lose, they've lose sight. I, I almost, it's almost funny because it's, it's not funny, but it seems like a social experiment because it, you see when people get bored, like terrorism is bred out of boredom. Yes. hundred right? percent. When, when you are a in an Afghan in the middle of nowhere with nothing to look forward to, and you have no purpose, um, and somebody comes to you with an ideology that drives a dream and vision that you've only fathomed in your head, that seems very alluring. And when people rise up and they raise fist, no matter what the condition or no matter what the terms, people want to fight because they want to be part of something in their persona, in their identity, in their virtue, and you know whatever it manifests itself into. um, A lot of this looks like people lost. And it, it breaks my heart because there's they're searching for something. And we had talked about this before. My guys are very good at herding people who are sheeple that... Sheeple, I love that. That have assimilated looking for something lost. And then we've herded them into preparedness and a lifestyle of survival. And then the light bulb goes off and they go, man, this is it. And, and I had to say it like it's a religion or something because it's not, but it's... It's purpose. So, you know, when you have a drive to do something um, in your life and you're looking for that one thing, at least pick something positive that's not divisive. I agree, man.
1: I agree. I think it's harder. It's easy for people to hate. It's easy for people to get pissed off and fight. It's harder to get together and find a solution. But that's, we need a charismatic voice. We need somebody to stand up. And unfortunately, the only people that you listen to are... You know, cable news trumping up politicians because that's where the money is, right? All the money goes into politics. Therefore, all the exposure goes into politics. Therefore, people look for solution from politicians. It ain't happening. It is not happening in my lifetime. I can point to endless wars and presidents and politicians. It doesn't matter. It doesn't add up. The system has not changed.
0: You you go from uh, like let's just call it phase one. You're an HRT. I think it's fascinating because you you wrote this book at the end of your career. It got signed off by the Federal Bureau of of Investigation, which I'm assuming was a pain in the ass because at that time, any kind of stories internally like Waco and Ruby Ridge um, were not talked about or discussed. And what I find interesting is at the tail end of that career path, you had a plan for a book signing or a book uh, deal thing. That was supposed to go on on September 12th.
1: Yeah, so I I wrote the book the FBI really got behind it The FBI again, we'll go back to individuals, right? The FBI was my friends I mean the the people that made decisions in a building in Washington DC our headquarters. I knew them all right I sat down and explained it to them, and I think the FBI saw this as a very positive thing You know in your community Tim Kennedy does a lot for the army, whatever you think of him, he does a lot for the army because of his work in the UFC and he gets a lot of people, he's a recruiting tool, whatever you think of him. And, uh, but, you, but we needed somebody like that in the FBI at the time. And I think they looked at that book uh, the same way. So I sold the book, uh, you can't have two jobs in the FBI, you can't write a book and be an FBI agent. So the FBI said, we'll support the book, but you gotta go. And I said, yeah, I get it. I was going anyway, right? It was a financial thing, I made a lot of money on the book. I felt good about what it did for recruiting for the FBI, but it was honest. I didn't pull any punches I love the FBI. I love that life. I love the United States government. I'm a fucking patriot Um, but I did so I left and ironically My first book signing for the book through the the publicity tour or whatever Was at a barnes and noble at the south tower of the world trade center on september 12 2001. Wow. So I was in london uh, doing some stuff there. I flew back on the 10th. I went into my FBI office in Quantico, Virginia on the 11th, September 11th, watched it all on TV, got on a train and went up to New York.
0: Because the following, the following day, you literally were going to be in the tower. Correct. Man.
1: Yeah. I was going that night to, for the next morning to be in a tower. So I had to, you know, can you imagine from our world dedicating your life to terrorism? I worked Yemen. I worked bin Laden. I worked, uh, all kinds of secret ops that you and I will talk about some of the time. Um. My whole, that was my whole life. And then to leave the FBI, and the day you leave, have 9-11 hit, it was gut-wrenching. It was terrible. Fortunately, I could move to the intelligence side, and I was, I was in Afghanistan three weeks after 9-11.
0: Was it, was it gut-wrenching because you wanted to be part of Hell yeah, man. the fight?
1: The fight's on, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm doing the fight piecemeal. The, gloves are, piece off meal. the yeah. gloves are
1: off. I'm doing little hits here and there, trying to make the world safer, democracy, whatever the case may be. Now it's on. Now we're going to war. And I'm and I'm getting out. It was terrible. It was absolutely terrible, but it worked out really, really well because then I had a I, you know I, I went to work for NBC. I had a television show. I had a masthead gig with GQ magazine of all things. I mean I know it sounds weird. I uh, had an op-ed contract with the New York Times. So I was writing. I was on TV every day. I had a very, very good cover, so I could go and do things on intelligence agency, Well, CIA contracts, and uh, one of them was through the Pentagon. And and that's how I ended back up in in Afghanistan before very very early on um, By myself flew into Islamabad went up through Peshawar through Deer into the Swat Valley uh, Very early on before those guys on the horses. was was that you guys? Yeah, it that was 13 uh, horsemen Yeah 555
0: five, five, triple nickel. Yeah and a couple ODAs. Yeah. yeah,
1: so that you know, that was that was pretty incredible I did my life in in this world in our world was vastly more interesting after 9-11, after I left the FBI than before. Mm. Somalia, Indonesia, Yemen, um, Afghanistan, Pakistan, all gigs after 2001. Uh, That was really fucking crazy stuff, man. Crazy stuff.
0: When you, like, I remember the feeling after 9-11, I was in the infantry at the time and then was 100% committed to the fight was going into special operations, was like, this is, I, I know my, it's easy to lay a path when you, the, the gloves come off. You had lost the structure of that path because now you're out on your own. You're, right. a, you're a true singleton. Right. At, operating as a singleton, was it difficult for you? I'm assuming there's a transition there. Like right, It's like you're part of a tribe, and you have your brothers in arms, which at that time was HRT, and then you're now transitioning to a, a singleton. I remember when I was an SF guy, active duty in Libya, doing counterterrorism operations, literally on terminal leave. I hadn't even left the army. I was back at it doing contracting back in Libya by myself. And it was a transition. It was difficult for me. Like I did my job and I did it well. But when everything was quiet and when everything was just silent, it, it really fucked me up. You know,
1: I think I had the opposite reaction, to be honest mm. with you, it, 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 because it was so bizarre. Right. And I looked at some humor. So here's a, here's a funny thing. Right after 9-11, when we first launched, you could you could kind of get in two ways. You could go through Uzbekistan south. Right. You could go to Islamabad north through the Khyber Pass. Mm-hmm. That was the, the journalist. The New York Times was going through there, whatever. And uh, so I decided uh, for various reasons to go through, Uzbek- through uh, Islamabad. So when I get to Islamabad, I got to go to the station right at the embassy and uh, I go to the embassy And in the old days somebody would have called ahead and they would have said x y and z and you know how you get in right? An off-site black site, whatever the case might be So I go there by myself and I'd never thought about that So I get off the plane and I go to the embassy and they had local security and an outer perimeter And then they got the inner perimeter at the at the embassy itself and here's this fucking pakistani military guy Standing at a at a drop gate and uh, and I go up and he goes something like can I help you or whatever and all of a sudden It dawned on me. What am I gonna tell him? Who I'm going to see right? I'd never thought about it before and I go uh, I, I gotta see a guy and he goes. What do you mean you got to see a guy? Hmm. And I go why? Well, uh, who are you gonna see? Uh, you know, you know, I'm not gonna stay. I don't know what to say. I didn't know the station chief the the RSO I, I didn't know what to say mm-hmm. and it never had dawned on me so what I found out when I went on my own is how many things I took for granted, like mm. like weapons and identities and passports and logistics and assets, and and who and knowing who an asset is. I, I wish we had another couple hours to talk about this because some of the shit that happened is so crazy when you're out on your own and you're trying to put this together, uh, and how I got stuck in various places. Like I, we were talking about how I got stuck in in Somalia, Baidoa, Somalia. And I end up at the Mogadishu airport, uh, surrounded by guys trying to figure out who's gonna get me. This was two th- uh, April of 2006, just before the second battle of Mog. And my, I lost my, tech, my technical on the way. And when I got, got to the airport, which isn't really an airport, you know what it is. And uh, they took all my money and my fucking passport. So I'm standing there, this idiotic white man uh, in Mogadishu, Somalia with no money no passport and no team and that was that was not a good day Mm. but you don't see those things coming even with the best of operations and planning because if you don't have the mechanism of the United States government in a traditional sense behind you in these things it gets it gets very complicated but anyway I I I love that I, I didn't learn very quickly and I didn't uh fortunately I survived it but I, but it was not smart decision-making.
0: Well, subsequently after 9-11, you spent the majority of your life overseas.
1: No, I well, I spent a lot of my life overseas, but I had a contract with NBC and and I was on a speaker's bureau. So I traveled all the time, but I also lived in New York City and worked at CNBC and MSNBC who were in New Jersey across the river. So uh, I moved around a lot and it was fascinating times, but it was... It was it was really, it was crazy, man. It were you a,
0: were you able to st- like most guys th- and with our backgrounds and doing operations? It's difficult for us to balance home life and work life. Yeah, right. There is no balance. The the commitment yeah, is right. you come home and you're thinking about the next rotation or the next objective, and so when you're there, you're not really there. Maybe physically you're there, uh, but you're truly not there. Were you able to strike any balance or was it difficult for you to manage?
1: I think, I, I think it was very difficult for me to manage and it was for a lot of different things. Uh, so I've written five books. I'm writing a book now called Anonymous Mail and it's a second biography, 2001 to now. And the premise of that is it's called Anonymous Mail, M-A-L-E because in that world, I lost my identity to the outside world because I was always somebody else, right? Uh, aliases and uh, everything is a lie. Everything is a lie that you do in those gigs and eventually I became anonymous to myself I had no friggin clue who I was or what I was or where I was or what I was doing or anything else and I was very fortunate because I had a very traditional and Really remarkable family four kids an incredible wife was one of the greatest human beings I've ever in my life Rose who I wrote about in the book who has a PhD in psychology mm-hmm. so if you're gonna be married to somebody that can help you make sense of, of that type of world I was married to a, an expert, a doctor, right? I think that helped and she's just a remarkable people. And my kids are fucking incredible. So there were lots and she's a great mom. So I think I just got really lucky that I had the support system that made it work and I happened to be married to the one person on the planet earth who could make sense of it and tolerate it and find some kind of resilience through the process. Yeah. Um, but nobody else did, I mean, everybody uh, got divorced or committed suicide or or uh, tweaked out. I mean one interesting thing from your world for, that Your listeners will find interesting is two things one HRT for a time had so many exotic diseases uh, That they did a they did a, it was either Walter Reed or Bethesda did a, a case study on the team To try and figure out why guys were getting so many bizarre diseases and and I know this for a fact I won't go into details. How am I gonna say this? I know a lot of guys from your community, Tier one community who uh, are how am I going to say this that uh, Tier one guys have such a problem with testosterone with depleted testosterone that there's a program now to augment testosterone for the rest of their lives yeah, yeah. and and i and I look at that and I say this, going in, you've got the most testosterone uh, Infused population on earth, right? I mean, that's all of us. We're poisoned by it But something happens and, and we're talking about PTSD or CTE and I think a steady diet of overpressure has created a physiological process that's going to take a long time for the for the, gov- the medical, government medical community to figure out for this reason We shot 250,000 rounds a year on average thousands of flashbangs Hundreds if not thousands of door breaches. Some of them were fucking knock you senseless. I had a headache half the time for 15 years and I, I think we all go through the same thing and that's not even combat that's training mm-hmm. and and you look at the, per, the continual Percussive nature of overpressure. I mean it would blow your clothes off it'd blow your hat off and blow your glasses off and knock you down Right over and over and over again And then at lunchtime you go out and fist fight right for for PT and I look at it And I think what the what the military community is finding out now is its finest tier one guys who get that steady diet of both training and and combat overpressure are It's a it's affecting the the HPT uh, HPT uh, Hormone production Mm -hmm. and they're finding now that guys are not producing testosterone and you get you got world-class tier one guys who are growing Guts and bitch tits and their hairs falling out, and everything because of hormonal disruptions, so I, I think what we're finding out now is the toll the human toll uh, physiologically and and the corresponding psychological aspects of this thing we'll be trying to figure out for years. Mm-hmm. but these American heroes coming out of war right now have paid a huge sacrifice huge sacrifice, and at some point somebody's got to acknowledge that and and do something about it in my opinion
0: yeah i think you're spot on i think that's the biggest problem that's not being managed right now Uh, the 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 most recent thing that i've seen is a study that was conducted by the national football league on studying their players but in conjunction with that because the money was pulled they did test uh, a certain amount of veterans from the global war on terror and not just tier one guys but we're talking about military guys who were exposed i mean me and Kevin have run Carl Gustav ranges where you're only supposed to eat three to four HEDP uh, high explosive rounds per day um, for an extended period of time, and you're supposed to have breaks and lulls. We would run ranges where yeah. we were yeah. the experts of you know special special forces weapons guys, and we'd run everybody in our company, uh, a DA company, through that, and then the breaches. And then we both know we have CTE, and the scary thing about CTE is. Uh, in the NFL study, the overwhelming majority did have CTE, which is con- not concussive blast, but con- uh, concussive impact. And sequential. And it's sequential. Yeah. And so it's, it's exposure. Yeah. And so the 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 veteran group, 100% of them had CTE. And the, the problem with CTE is it's degenerative, right? Yeah. So you have brain damage, literal brain damage, and it never gets better. Right. And so you, you have basically calcified scar tissue in your brain, and then that just causes more issues the older you get. And, and we've seen it. I mean, uh, all of us, at, uh, all my buddies and all my uh, guys, I mean, I, I produced on active duty, because I got my um, testosterone checked, over 1,500, which I think the threshold is 1,300. I was producing 1,500, and I <laughs> wasn't a physical specimen, but I was probably the most in-shape capable physical dude i knew and running and climbing and just being overall physical and you see that across the board yeah. with all of those same guys that we were physically fit now again like like i don't know if i got i got my training bra on right now but <laughs> a, a lot of guys are having issues yeah it, it's a,
1: it is a it is a big problem mm-hmm. there's a lot of guys i know still in the community who have stopped producing testosterone? Mm. Their body has naturally stopped producing testosterone, which has to be trauma to the system, right? there yeah. has got to be some endocrinological problems yeah. that is now being diagnosed and treated. And I know guys have gone through programs, and I know now that it is that that if you're in the community, that you can get it for the rest of your life, synthetic testosterone, the rest of your life. So yeah. what I'm saying is, you you were talking about how people were treated and and uh, in the after effect. I, I talk about talk to younger guys coming out. Uh, or their wives, or whatever, about behavioral issues and things like that. And I've been incredibly lucky. I'm a very happy guy. I still have, uh, well, my friends might argue, but I still have most of my faculties. And I sleep well. Uh, I'm very, very, very lucky that way. Lots of guys aren't. We we both know that. So, uh,
0: what is it? What is it? Distinctively, can you line out? A few things if any of what the difference is between you and Somebody else decision wise w- what are you doing that others aren't great great question? And I don't know the answer I think part of it is that I Weaned myself of the system
1: over a period of years. I, I didn't I had a sudden break at HRT handed in the kung-fu grip moved over but then I got to go to uh, Contract work with CIA and with the Defense Department and I got a dose of it there and that led, that was about five years. Then I went to East Timor, which was a war zone that I could manage. I built a security company, but I had more war. I had my own personal war there, and I had a war there for four years. And I stepped it down over time. Then I moved to Bali, and I just surfed for three years. I mean, literally. I i, I lived at the That's beach. That's a good
0: transition. That
1: was a good transition. And then I moved to Montana, and I get to hang out with you knuckleheads, ride yeah. horses, and shoot guns, and... and uh, I think I think that's part of it But here's one thing that I think helped me enormously. I was I was talking to a friend one day about the the HRT years and he said Well, you were lucky because this was something you did along the way But you had someplace else to go where this is my entire life Mm. and I think identity is a really important thing and we're talking to Kevin about that You guys have been one thing your entire life the very finest that this human that the society can create You are the pinnacle the Michael Jordan of War, but the world's moved on for war. You've got to have something else mm. and that's what you have now You're contributing you've got a voice to help other people You have a reason to wake up in the morning and being excited about life And you're fucking doing great things for people that need it not just people coming out of war but for society that needs leadership from people who've been there in adversity and understand the process mm. so I, I, I think you guys are gonna be great because you have a mission now And we're mission-oriented guys hmm I gotta have a mission I gotta wake up and I don't care what that mission is But I gotta have a mission otherwise. There's no reason. I've done everything in life I'll just ride out in the woods and 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 smoke a 45, you know, I got, I got the gun picked out I'm gonna do it with if I do it mm-hmm. But I don't want to do it tomorrow because I got a reason to get up mm-hmm. and I met you guys And I see the same fucking thing you've got a reason to go and do something you've got an obligation a commitment a mission to help all these fucking goofballs running around in the street with masks on their face, writing graffiti on the wall. This country needs direction. People need motivation. They need you. And there's a shitload of people out there, your friends, that are probably looking to get part of this thing. You know, I come back to this, this whole concept of the bench. And, I, and I'll say it again. I, I don't want to steal it from somebody. I don't know if it was Stump or uh, Kennedy or you. or I don't know who it was where I heard it. But it's a brilliant concept that there is... A majority there's 300 million people between Riverside, California and the Hudson River between New York and LA There's 300 million people Looking to do the right thing for the country. They love right and there's a lot of people sitting on the sidelines waiting to be part of that So anyway, I don't know what the catalyst is guys, but I'm grateful. that I got to know you guys. I'm proud of what you're doing and,
0: uh, and And I'm really lucky to know you I appreciate that What phase if you had to determine this phase of your life What phase is this? And then do you feel like you're living that Ernest Hemingway? The more I talk to you, I'm like, you're living it right now.
1: Oh, I fucking got it. That's awesome. The only thing I I didn't do is, I got this great picture of Hemingway. I'll pull it up and show it to you. It's it's about two weeks before he smoked himself in Idaho, (laughs) right? And uh, so listen, I love Hemingway. And I could quote him. I could talk about him, whatever else. But he liked adventure, uh, short sentences, and ugly women and i like two of those three things <laughs> right
0: <laughs> so <You're> close
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's your Hemingway, but I, I just got to show you this picture and the, the people listening to this story uh are, I can't uh, see it right now but you can google it and you google hemingway uh in his last days and you've got to look at this picture uh hemingway was a stud and he, and this was like two weeks before he killed himself wow can you believe that's him
0: that's crazy for That's people that picture. don't know
1: what we're looking at, it's Ernest Hemingway standing in a tiled room in his underwear.
0: A double barrel shotgun. With a big
1: fat gun and a double, sh- double barrel shotgun pointing it at you. And he said, he woke up one day and he goes, okay, it's been a great ride. See ya. Nice. And, uh, and so, he checked yeah, out on
0: his terms. He
1: checked out on his terms. I'm not advocating suicide, but my point is who, who fucking cares and gets to tell you what to do? Mm. You know? It's a great ride, guys. I love every breath. I'm grateful for everything I've had in life. And you ask me what stage. I'm in the stage of uh, gratitude and, re- and repayment. That's where I am right now. Mm-hmm.
0: Man. This is the longest podcast I've ever done. Yeah. But it's it'll by- probably
1: be 15 seconds when it comes out. You know? No, it's by far the uh,
0: <laughs> the most interesting conversation I've ever had. Really? Well, it's, no. it's insane. I mean, you have so many layers of life and, you know, That's one inspiring, but it should be all inspiring for many people because it it shows you and it proves you like, with the idea that you could will, with the idea that you have a choice, with the idea that if you actually physically get off your ass and do something about determination, you could accomplish anything you want to. And it doesn't have to be like most people think that this ride is a. This epic journey where they stand on a hill of success and that equals some measure of accomplishment, but the journey doesn't end. No. It's cyclic and it, it continues, and you just go through different phases and just different periods of your life. And where you fail, you could still pick yourself up and accomplish where you left off and be even greater. Uh, and and that whole th- you know that whole diversification and adapting through adversity. And being resilient is what the life cycle and this journey is all about. And so many people are so determined to live their life in a, one single dimension. And the fact that you've, you know, been able to have every facet. Um
1: You know, it's fascinating. Hemingway, who I, I don't quote anybody because I I don't I've never memorized quotations very much, but I, I can paraphrase lots of things he said, but he said famously, everybody breaks. And some people heal at the broken places, and get stronger. And and I think that's a way to look at it. If anybody makes it to the end of this thing, and and here's these words. This is what, what I think it all comes down to. That what I've done in my life are just things. And we're talking about this because I started out in this community and pioneer, you know, early days of of the of that community. But in my mind, none of those things matter. The only thing that matters if I could. Say one thing that I consider important is that a human being that can find his objective his or her objective And they believe that they can accomplish that objective Is going to lead a successful fruitful loving peaceful uh fulfilled life Even if they fail Because there's no there's no harm in that. If you know what you want to do if you can help yourself find and define what that is And you can live your life working toward it. That's a noble life. And you're probably going to win. Most people that do it end up succeeding.
0: Witt, thank you so much, man. It's the best, brother.